Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. You're soft. You're sloppy. You're unruly. You're undisciplined. And I never saw anything look so wonderful in my whole life. Happy holidays and welcome to the very first double feature, holiday double feature on The Cinephiles. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas. This is the outlaw, John Roca, writer, producer, and host and voiceover artist here on The Cinephiles. And Steve, I'm uh, really excited that we're diving into this film. This is one that is a curiously longer remake of the film we just discussed, but with some interesting things for us to discuss and certainly one of our favorite characters ever in a Christmas movie or holiday movie. And I've I think it's going to be fun for the fans to uh, hear our conversation about that as well and all of it uh, here on this particular episode. Well, and it's funny when you texted me and said how much you love that character, I was so happy because obviously we're on the same page about that. And those yeah. of you who know the film probably can take a guess at who we're talking about. Um, but it's, it's so you brought up that this is kind of a remake and kind I of. want to share. <laughs> yeah, please. You know, we always talk about how we first came to the film and I said that I'd seen Ho Holiday Inn many, many times. 
And I had seen White Christmas a few times as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, you know, I love the brain and the science of memory. And I had what was clearly a false memory. And I had even talked to you about it, which is that I said, because in my mind, like I knew that, you know, they were connected. I knew they both had White Christmas. I knew they had twosomes. Danny Kaye would have replaced uh, Fred Astaire. And I remembered certain scenes from uh, White Christmas, but somehow in my brain, I had gotten it fixed that it had the same structure of different shows for different holidays, yeah. which it 100% does not. Yeah. And I talked to you about it. Of course, you hadn't seen Holiday Inn, so you didn't yeah. know that I was crazy. <laughs> and so I was talking about this idea of going, breaking both movies apart and going sequence by sequence in each film back and forth because they shared the same structure until I started watching White Christmas and realized they don't share remotely the same structure. So A, I think it's hilarious that I just had a constructed a completely false memory about this film. But B, as I've been thinking about in the last few days, there actually are some interesting comparisons to make, Mm. which I will get into in terms of how story works and why I have different feelings about these films. And the other thing I, I, one other uh, Surgeon General's warning I want to put out is part of it is, Holiday Inn was part of my childhood in the way that White Christmas was not. And so for me, Holiday Inn is more special. And I'm absolutely 100% certain that there are people out there who have the opposite situation that White Christmas was their family movie. And for those of you, I don't want to say anything critical about the film that you love, but I am going to say some critical things about what I saw. I guess that's how I'm going to put all this. So with that, with that warning out there, John, I said how I have come to this film. How did you first come to White Christmas? You know, it's this interesting story because um, uh, for those of you who have known me for a while and have followed me for a while, you know how uh, I have spoken about a uh, terrible previous relationship that I was in before The Lady Outlaw. And uh, I will, I've spoken about the negative experiences that I had there, but one of the positives that came out of that experience was that I got to see White Christmas for the first time ever with this person because this person really loved the movie and had spent years um, in love with the movie since she was a child. And so when it was showing at, cause we were living at time in LA at the time, it was showing at the arrow theater, which is for those of you who don't know who live in LA, who don't live in LA, the arrow theater, the Egyptian, and um, there's a couple other theaters they show old movies in the actual theater. And yes, you pay money. It's a whole thing. And they try to show it to you in the best condition possible. And it's a great way to see older movies that you've never seen before for the first time and kind of simulate what it must have been like to see it back in whatever decade it came out. And so to me, going to see White Christmas uh, with her was one of the best experiences of our um, fraught relationship. And uh, I thought that was such a great way to see the movie on the big screen for the first time in in just beautiful VistaVision, first time ever VistaVision, uh, and falling back in love with the greatness of Danny Kaye, really enjoying Bing Crosby. Vera Ellen, an actress that I supremely loved from On the Town, which was one of my favorite musicals growing up. So seeing her in something else like this, I thought was great. And Rosemary Clooney, who I had only known like as a spokesperson and talk show guest um, when I was growing up. And of course, Come On To My House, which is one of my mom's favorite songs. But I had never seen her really perform in anything as an actress. So I got that whole experience in the Arrow movie theater in Santa Monica. And it was great and sweet and uh, loved most of the songs and just the over general overall experience. And we saw it during Christmas season 
So for me, it had even more of an effect uh, to watch it that way. So that was my first experience. And I've watched it a few times since. And I watched it again, obviously, for our conversation in preparation. And, you know, looking forward to discussing it with you, man. And, and I would say for those of you who are cinephiles, who happen to live in like an urban center where they have movie theaters like the Alex or the New Beverly, or I grew up with the UC Theater up in Berkeley, it's such a joy. And I will say, like, particularly a movie like White Christmas, going at Christmas time to an old fashioned movie theater like that, mm-hmm. probably filled with people who love the movie. It was filled. It was not a seat was left. Yeah. That ups the, you know, I've said, like, I think that watching a movie on a plane makes good movies 20% worse and terrible <laughs> movies 20% better. Yeah. I think the the experience of going to that kind of a movie theater with that kind of audience that's like a 30% bump at least at least to yeah. how good the experience cuz you just you're just so surrounded by the joy of all these people who love the film brother if there's one thing i miss about la it is that uh, i don't have that much of that in san diego anymore and being able to go see old films like i remember going to see chariots of fire before i left and it was a packed movie wow. theater when you're sitting in the bubble of social media and people go, nobody likes this film. Nobody watches this film. They're making fun of the film. And then you go to a theater and it is full of people who want to appreciate an old movie that you love. I think it's a great experience. And it's a nice, like quiet validation for yourself that there are other people who feel the same way about something you love, which is great. I I remember going to see big trouble in little China at the (laughs) Egyptian. And it was probably not that long after I'd gotten out of film school and I hadn't watched it in a while. And I went, (laughs) Uh, is this maybe that was just a movie I liked in my youth and maybe it's kind of dumb. And then I watched it surrounded by people who love Big Trouble Little China. I'm like, this is the greatest film I've ever seen in my life. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's the best. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about White Christmas. Of mm-hmm. course, uh, we start with Holiday Inn, which was a huge hit. Irving Berlin, Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire made Blue Skies after that, which is in the mid forties. And they were going to make a re this kind of movie surrounding the song White Christmas, but then it didn't happen. I think Fred threw his back out at one point and then it got delayed. And then Fred saw the script when they come back to it in like 53. And Fred looks at the script and it seems sounds like the early versions of the script were a mess. And he went, pass. <laughs> now, it might have been we've heard Fred Astaire multiple times was trying to retire from musicals. Yeah. There was other maybe there were other things going on, but he says he's out. Then they say, OK, let's bring in Donald Con- O'Connor. This is right after Singing in the Rain. Nice. He's, you know, on the up, but then he gets sick. And so now they bring in Danny Kaye. And this is our first Danny Kaye movie. I mm-hmm. adore Danny Kaye. And I'd love to just give a little bit of a bio about him. Please. He's born Daniel Kaminsky, dropped out of high school, a high school that is now named for Danny Kaye, <laughs> which I think is a nice move. He has zero training, no dance training, no singing training, nothing formal whatsoever. He just wanted to do this stuff, goes up and works in the Catskills. And it sounds like whenever they needed someone to entertain in any way, Danny was like, pick me, pick me, and just kept doing it and doing it until he became a bigger and bigger star. And at one point he was touring in China and just learned ways to entirely communicate without using language, just using noises and his body. And he's truly one of the funniest like can just create funny of any people i know yeah absolutely i mean one of the first people that i got to really appreciate when watching old movies growing up as a kid was danny Kay. i mean there's just so many um that the, the court jester is was just a staple in our house uh so many other things and of course him being a guest on numerous talk show variety shows that were a big deal in the 70s and 80s 
seeing him perform. And there was just this energy of sweetness from Danny Kaye. Yes. And niceness. And you really just felt like he was one of these guys that just really wanted to entertain you. And of course, as human beings, other stuff behind the scenes and whatever. But like when you watched him, he just radiated that energy that immediately you wanted to like this guy and want to be part of this guy's orbit. So I just remember just being madly in love with Danny Kaye for many, many years as a performer. I absolutely felt the same way. And you're, and you're totally right. He is one of those people that was on the talk show circuit. So we saw him all the time mm. growing up. And he's obviously hugely, hugely influential. I don't think we have Jerry Lewis in the same way. I don't think we oh, have yeah. Robin Williams in the same way. Without Jim Carrey. Yeah. I'm Jim totally Carrey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he also, by the way, he is the he is what put the charity of UNICEF on the map in a lot wow. of ways. I he did became, not know that. Yeah. He became their spokesperson in the 50s. And then, and of course, his ability to travel around the world and connect with children who didn't speak English is remarkable. And he just, that is what suddenly made this a huge, huge, massive charity was Danny Kaye's work. Wow. So he gets hired onto the movie. He gets paid $200,000 and Crosby and Irving Berlin had to give up a percentage of their gross to get Danny Kaye. And Danny Kaye ended up with 10% of the gross of this movie, which was a smooth business deal. Let me tell you something. Sometimes being third choice can work out for you. Sometimes yeah. it's not a bad thing. For those of you who are out there going, oh, I wasn't first choice or I was in second choice. Sometimes it can work out for you. Don't be so arrogant. So, but the script apparently is a mess. And may, and A, obviously we I've heard that Fred rejected the script. So that's, so it was already wasn't in good shape. But then when you go from Fred Astaire to Donald O'Connor, Donald O'Connor and Fred Astaire are not the same. They right. can't play the same person. And so the script gets rewritten for Donald O'Connor. And now Danny Kaye comes in. Danny Kaye is not the same as Donald O'Connor. Right. You know, and so the the screen they brought in new screenwriters. <laughs> the screenwriter described it as the worst experience of his life. <laughs> and he described the movie as the lousiest story he had ever heard. <laughs> this is the new screenwriter. This These are the new screenwriters. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and the director is someone we've talked about before on The Cinephiles, which is Michael Curtiz of yeah. Casablanca. And we also talked about him because he directed The Adventures of Robin Hood. Again, one of these directors who has numerous classic films on his resume, but almost no one brings up outside of the film bubble yeah. of what a con what an incredible contribution he's made to the history of film. It it's it's yeah. phenomenal. Well, it's not, I, mean, I think part of it is, is Michael Curtiz, my understanding is, if there was a job, he took it. You know, <laughs> so not? he did. Yeah, those, so he, there's a there's a there's a quantity issue, I think, with his <laughs> films, you know, not a quality issue. Um, one thing they did have was pretty long rehearsal process. Apparently, Bing Crosby took rehearsal very, very seriously. He expected when you showed up that you knew your lines, you knew the song, you practiced the song and you came in to get work done because he wanted to get it just right because he wanted to get done early so he could go play golf. Hey, <laughs> come on now. So Jack Nicholson did the same thing, man. Come on now. I apologize, John, because apparently I made that sound like a negative. <laughs> I am admiring Bing Crosby's work ethic yeah. and his goal of, because I don't want to set show up on a set and dick around. I want to show up on the set and efficiently get the work done so we can go home. Yeah. You Just know. like Eastwood. One, two takes. I, I got yeah. what I need. Moving on, man. Yeah. Speaking of moving on, would you like to move on into the movie? Uh, yeah, let's do it. So uh, we have our, a long credit sequence in which, again, we hear some of the Irving Berlin songs. We see that this is filmed in VistaVision, 
Uh, John, would you like to know what VistaVision actually is? I was I was hoping you would say you would uh, give us a history lesson on this because it's a, it's apparently the first time in VistaVision this film. So one of the first films ever in VistaVision. So here's so this is what's happening is that in the late 40s TV shows up and movies get scared. What are we going to do if people can just stay home and watch TV? They're not going to come out to the movies. And this is what literally I think today with streaming services we finally have reached where those TVs are really starting to win, no but we knows. have been uh, we have been afraid of this battle, the film industry, since the late '40s, yeah. and so they went, "How do we make the movie experience different?" And at the time when TV started, film was a four by three image, so four inches wide for every three inches tall, mm-hmm. and TV is exactly the same, four by three. It's the exact same size screen. So if you watch Citizen Kane on a movie screen and then watch it on TV, it'd be, look exactly the same, right. framing wise. So they went, well, let's make a widescreen uh, experience. And so that, they did this all different ways. One of them was just to cut the top and the bottom off of the piece of film, and now it's widescreen. That's what a lot of movies are. And they said, well, can we do any better? And what they decided was instead of running the film through the camera vertically, mm-hmm. they would run the film through the camera horizontally, Ooh. which would allow a horizontal film frame to be much wider. And so the it's the same 35 millimeter film, except yep. it's perforated differently and it goes horizontally through the camera. That is what VistaVision is. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And Thank and it was used. That. Yeah. You are very welcome. This is I I feel like I've done my job. <laughs> um, and this was used for like seven years, and it's competing with other ways of doing things like Cinemascope, Panavision, Cinerama. All these things are trying to do the same thing. And or 70 millimeter is another one. And then we have some winners and we have some losers. VistaVision was not one of the winners, except they used it for much longer in Japan and Europe. But more importantly, someone said, man, we're going to do these special effect shots. I really wish we had film that had more resolution so we would work better for our super detailed special effect shots. And that film was Star Wars. Oh, wow. The special effects sequence in Star Wars are shot in VistaVision. Huh. That is amazing. I did not know that. Oh, that's great. Um, so after we find out that it's VistaVision, we show up, and this I had remembered from seeing it as a kid, Christmas Eve, 1944, in Europe. And we have like a little show going on with Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. What I find weird, and I found this immediately jarring, is that it's very much a little you know, theater set in yeah. World War II, like we saw in Bridge on the River Kwai when they do the little show, right? Yeah. But then the stage that they're filming this on is so clearly a film set to me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like you could just kind of see them. It's like a very, we're making a musical version of World War II and on the musical version of World War II, we're creating a little fake set. And I found it very jarring. Do you? Did you have that experience at all? Well, no, I remember um, that when I watched it the first time, I remember being like, this is such an interesting decision. And you know what comes to me? And I know this will probably be the first time ever someone's connected this, maybe, (laughs) is all I can think of is the line from Apocalypse Now, where um, uh, Charlie Sheen or Martin Sheen, Martin Sheen says, you know, the more they made it feel like home, the more they made people miss it. And so you're watching this as a version of that, right? Because they've got that backdrop that they've put up. You've got Fred and and um, Danny, or sorry, uh, 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 Bing and Danny dancing and doing their song, and then right over. I mean, you as the soldier, you can see right outside the edges of that hung band, hung curtain in the back there. 
that you can see the actual war behind you. So, but you as a viewer watching the film for the first time, you're like, wait, what am I supposed to get out of this? Because it seems like it seems like uh, as we as as Joe Pesci might say in JFK, it seems like wheels within wheels within wheels. You yeah. know, there's all this, all this kind of stuff going on. Because you're like, wait, am, what's the real set? What's not the real set? Um, but I imagine they did this on purpose so that you know, a to save money, but also b to make give you the experience of what it must have been like to be there and kind of blurring that uh, line between reality and fiction. And I I kind of appreciate the beginning. Um, because it's also a respect. Remember, this is only 10 years out or nine years after the end of World War II, uh, kind of a respect to the people who had served during that time. And this is also right around the time when the idea of the greatest generation was coming in as something that people were talking about discussing in bigger ways. It's so funny. The Holiday Inn was very much a early 40s, late 30s, early 40s musical. Yes. And this is the 50s. Right. The war just happened to break out during Holiday Inn. Yeah. This is after the war is born. We have actually won it. So it's more of a, an appreciation type approach. Yeah. Well, well, it's not, I don't just mean that in terms of the war. I mean, in terms of the way musicals look like oh, this right. is, Fair this point. is just yes. like, we're in these costumes. We're on these sets. We have these bright colors. And so the war, the war that we're going to see is the war of the 1950s, you know, musical. Good point. Yes. Um, uh, and as we're seeing the show, go on a jeep pulls up and there is a two generals one who is dressed very perfectly and one who has obviously been in the war a while what's this all about captain a little entertainment for the men sir tonight's christmas eve these men are moving up tonight general waverly they should be lined up for full inspection you're absolutely right there's no christmas in the army captain and that is general waverly dan jagger should we get into him now or should we wait till later? He's the heart of the movie. He's the whole, he's the, he's the whole reason this movie works for me. Let's do it. Let's rip open the curtain, walk through the door. Yes. Both of us text each other supremely in love with this character. Um, we love what he brings to the, to the film. I know for me personally, having served, I've served for both of those guys, the guy who actually understands how to manage people and the uh, real rigid general with a with a stick up his ass. Uh, I've served for both w- with both of those people, and trust me, the one that actually cares about you is the one you want to serve for. And so I like that immediately we've got this division between these two. So you have that as the audience immediately liking this guy. Why? Because the whole film is going to lead to them doing the show to support and show appreciation for this general who, in my opinion, is standing in for all the soldiers who served in World War II as an appreciation thing. Even though there are soldiers in the film who are showing their appreciation to the general, I think this is the film itself saying thank you to all the people who served during World War II. And so you want to make the guy likable, tough when he needs to be, proud, dignified, but also, as we see later in the movie, a guy who is dealing with the fact that he can't find work or is not as successful outside the war. And certainly that has happened, right, multiple times in our history in the in, in this country and numerous other countries. So I like that this intro for him is so um, honest and so charming and you immediately like him because he's a no-frills guy who is just himself and cares about his soldiers. It's just genius, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I, I honestly have nothing to add to that. I, that's that's exactly how I feel about him, too. I'll give you a little bit of bio on him, mm. which is because he's in it. We have so many people, including a couple more in this film, yep. who are these actors who just 
worked for 50 years, you know, and weren't huge, huge stars, but just showed up and did the job. And in this movie, he does the job. I I mean, like I said, he's the heart of the film for me. So he, he joined a stock theater company, replacing a little actor, a little unknown actor named Spencer Tracy. (laughs) So he takes over for Spencer Tracy in a stock theater company. He starts doing movies in the twenties. His big break is in the film Tobacco Road in 1933. In 1940, he plays Brigham Young um, in the biopic about him. What's interesting about that is he was baptized as a Mormon 32 years later. Wow. So it affected him so strongly, I assume, that that led to this 32-year journey to become uh, a Mormon. Um, He's in a movie which I I think you and I have talked about, which is one of these great classic old-school westerns, which is Fritz Lang's Western Union. Yeah, yeah. Which is just a really, really tight film. He wins the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in in 1949 for 12 O'Clock High. Great and film. Then, if you guys haven't seen 12 O'Clock High, highly recommend it. I have never seen 12 O'Clock High. I highly recommend it, Steve. <laughs> um, it, and then he's just in tons, as you'd expect, tons of Westerns. He's in The Robe in 1953. He's in Bad Day, Black Rock. He's in King Creole. He's in Elmer Gantry. And then every, all the TV. All Partridge Family, Kung Fu. He's he plays Bruce Lee's ba- the bad guy boss in Bruce Lee's Game of Death. He's in the Waltons. He's in TV all the way up until Cheers. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's so crazy. Sergeant, take me to headquarters immediately. We'll have those men turned out on the double. Uh, Sergeant, uh, take the shortcut. And there's a little look exchange, and they drive off, and we already know what's going on. Yep. <laughs> Uh, the guy with him, the officer with him says, that's not the way back to headquarters. Joe, you know that, and I know that, but uh, the general doesn't know it. At least he won't for about an hour and a half. And the other detail I love about this is they comment on the fact that the sergeant who is the driver is going to be a private in the morning. Right. That the general knows, the sergeant knows that it's worth you losing your rank in order to keep, give the men this time together, you know? Yeah, the sacrifices that you make. And Steve, this is a way to use the um, uh, devious thing that Bing Crosby does in the first, in Holiday Inn, kind of weave that in here by having the general tell Never thought about that. Tell the sergeant to take him the wrong. So it's a way of using something that was in Holiday Inn, but only here. Well, and doing what was a devious thing for Bing Crosby's character is now a a, a good-spirited thing here. 100%. Hundred percent. Um, I never made that connection. That's really cool. Uh, we go back to Bing on stage. Who's about to go into White Christmas? And even though I gave some information about White Christmas when we did in Holiday Inn, I know more information, so I have more to tell you. Let's go. Uh, the more to tell you is that uh, Irving Berlin actually did write it at the pool at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles. Wow. So that's where that intro com- came from. Um, and he, in his brain, he really thought of this as a satire. He didn't think of White Christmas as a, this heartfelt song. He thought about it as, isn't it funny, this person in L.A. dreaming about snow when they're surrounded by palm trees and, you know, sunshine. One other tidbit that I found out, and I just find this so fa- fascinating, is that Irving Berlin played every song in the same key, which was mm-hmm. F sharp. And I guess he was, as, and I'm not a musician, so musicians, I'm sure this will make more sense than, than maybe it makes sense to me, but... He, he was a good piano player playing in the key of F sharp. And so he had a special piano built that had a lever that could slide the strings to under different keys 
thus changing the key, the actual sound the piano was making. So if he wanted to play in C major, he would still play the song in F sharp, but he would slide the lever so that the notes he was hitting was the C major notes. <laughs> Isn't that, I mean, again, I'm sure that musicians are listening to this are just going, what, the, you know, like that makes perfect sense or that's brilliant <laughs> or whatever it is. But I just thought that was a fascinating little piece of information. Totally. So here's the thing about White Christmas is, and again, th- this is, goes to why the general for me is the heart of the film mm. is that they make this song for holiday Inn, yeah not knowing that world war ii is about to start and not knowing that this song is going to be this huge song for soldiers serving overseas and so they go well let's make that the angle of the new film that it's it's the connection between white christmas and soldiers serving overseas in world war ii and that is what the the heart of the film is going to be and so the feeling of white christmas which was kind of sweet and romantic and about this relationship in holiday inn is totally transformed when we see it sung by bing crosby with the soldiers in this film yeah i'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen To hear sleigh bells in the snow I also like just the 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 choice that Danny Kaye is playing like a music box and that mm-hmm. that is the music for the song. Well, there's a lot of meta moments here, right? Because, I mean, first of all, the song became famous, be- but not from any of the recordings from the movies. I think that's what's interesting about this song as well. Like, none of the recordings of the movies mirror what you actually hear when you listen to the song. And Bing does, like in this in this particular performance by the way it's really interesting that comes so early in the film too which i think is an interesting decision but you've got meta moments here with the as you said steve the soldiers enjoying the song and we even see a close-up of one soldier leaning on his helmet uh which is on the rifle which is what you do y'all or oh sorry he's leaning on his hands on the rifle which is uh you know reflecting and thinking about home so showing that they understood the power of that song but having Danny get so caught up in Bing singing that he forgets to roll the the the, the bells, I think, is also a way of saying mm. you know, how much people loved Bing Crosby's performance of that song. And um, so, it, to me, it's working on so much, and also gives you a little window into their relationship. That guy, Danny Kay, is clearly in a submissive position to right. Bing Crosby's um, uh, dominant position, and I think that's important to know about their relationship as the film goes along so we're presented that and then of course in a few minutes we're told that they have different ranks so he's a lower rank because he's only a private yeah um and while this is happening the general has snuck into the audience and and again we see little pieces of his character that people want to jump to attention he doesn't want that to happen he doesn't want the attention he doesn't want to disrupt the show and bing who plays bob uh has hasn't seen him and so he's talking about how bad it is how it's too bad that general waverly couldn't be here for this because he's getting replaced the old man's moving toward the rear that's a direction he's never taken in his entire life a i think we learn a lot about general waverly just from this little bit yep and b i don't know if you had this experience but i can't help but think about Patton, and Mm -hmm. to some degree omar bradley or maybe a combination of the two 
Sure. And and maybe it's just because I know that movie really well and I, I, I associate that. But we're in Europe. It's right around Christmas time, which is when Patton had one of his big offenses. And he's one of those people that you remembered if you sort of under General Patton, you know. Mm-hmm. And I love this next moment because Bing Crosby is about to say the really, really nice things about General Waverly, who is in the audience. And he doesn't want to hear it. So now the guy who didn't want the attention when it would disrupt from the show says, because he wants to stop the compliments coming from Bing Crosby. Yeah. It's a powerful move. Some people just have a feeling about that, you know. Captain Wallace, who's responsible for holding a show in this advanced area? And that is when Danny Kaye jumps up and takes responsibility and that he is, and this is where we find out, as you say, that he's a private and we get to see that sort of wonderfully bumbling Danny Kay delivery of lines. Mm-hmm. Well, sir, as a matter of fact... Uh, it was me, sir. <clears throat> me, sir. It was my idea, sir. Do you like uh, the, the moment where he's told at ease and he snaps to attention? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, Because that makes so much sense because he's so nervous, this guy in power, and also like doesn't understand what's happening here and just is totally lost. So it's a great moment for sure, comedy-wise. And then General Waverly does what I would call taking on the hard ass, which is obviously a thing he has done many times. And he says, This division is now under the command of General Harold G. Carlton. I don't want you to forget it. Not that he'll let you. He's tough, just what this sloppy outfit needs. He'll have you standing inspection night and day. You may even learn how to march. And we know that he has been a tough general, and we yeah. also know that he is saying the opposite of what he's saying. You right. know? He's got a lot of love for his troops. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Well, I guess all I can say is how much I... What a fine outfit. How am I going? And again, it's another great moment because he's up on the stage. He's suddenly emotional, uncomfortable, and he turns to Bing Crosby and says... Don't just stand there. How do I get off? Yeah, get me out of the situation. Yeah. <laughs> which which you and I know many people who do not want to be on stage and would yeah. say exactly that thing. It's always fascinating to me. Yeah. Fortunately, he has a a slam bang finish, which is the song The Old Man. We'll follow the old man wherever he wants to go. Long as he wants to go. Opposite to the phone. Which I like this song a lot. Yeah, it's a good song. And as we're hearing, we'll follow the old man. General Waverly is marching through the troops, shaking hands. And then, and this is what uh, you said meta before. And it's, it's, <laughs> this is such a weird moment is that the bombs hit. Yeah. And so they, what you should do is, you know, hide. You <laughs> like, you know, take, you know, take cover because they're bombs hitting. But what, because we're in a musical is they sing in soft voices. Sotto voce. Stay they sing the lyrics and what's so bizarre about it is that that can only happen if it's choreographed you know what i mean right but but it's but we're in a musical so it kind of makes sense that they all sing at that level it's very strange um and then more bombs are coming in and more explosions and now we're really taking cover and then a wall gets hit and bricks are coming down and danny k grabs bing crosby and saves his life yes and we look down and see that his arm is hurt. Yeah, he's got a little bit of a gash. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes, you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of the, both of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. And we cut to the medical tent and uh, Bob comes to visit Phil. That's Bing Crosby visiting Danny Kay. <laughs> By the way, again, it's this weird we're in World War II, but mm. we're really in a Hollywood musical because Big Crosby's wearing like like a scarf, like an ascot. Yeah, that's yeah. sort of like all the costumes are so much music Hollywood musical versions of GI costumes. You know, yeah. it's very strange. And we have a little bit of you know he's checking on him to see how his arm is, and we have a little bit of small talk that ends with Bob saying, "Hey, if there's anything I can do, give me a call." And he says, "Well, sir, I've." Uh... I've kind of written a little song, you see, and I thought perhaps when we got back to the States, when this is all over, you know, I thought uh, maybe if you put this song in your act, it might be a big hit for you. I got a script here I've been working on if you if you really want to read it. Yep. Oh, boy. It's totally that. And again, he tries to do the, well, you know, pick up the phone. And he goes, no, no, I, I have it right here. And then, of course, we see that it's a duet. Yeah, it needs two people, two dynamite entertainers. But I work alone. I do a single. Who do you figure on for the other hunk of dynamite? He goes, how about me? Which, of course, we knew where this was going this yeah. whole time. And it's very obvious that Bob didn't want to accept this song. Right. Didn't want to bring on a partner. Didn't necessarily want that partner to be Phil. But then what does Phil do in this moment of indecision? Reaches down and touches his arm and says. Yeah. That's all right, Captain. I, I wouldn't want you to feel any special obligation in any way. I'd... What a terrible, terrible person. <laughs> so I mean, this is what. Away. Yeah. This is what's weird about this movie. Yeah. And and I want to talk about it in terms of structure and in terms of Holiday Inn, because this mm. is what just what occurred to me is like, basically, I think when we go to see a movie, we're like wandering through a desert and we're thirsty for plot. And so we're looking for what's the story going to be? You know what I mean? Like we're going, we're going like, what's this thing going to be about? I don't know if we're wandering in a desert. I just feel like I, we're sitting back and seeing what's going to show up, Steve. Uh, well, I would say, but aren't you, if you're watching a movie and 15 or 20 minutes are gone on and you don't know what the movie's about, you're feeling a bit thirsty at a certain what? point. Please. <laughs> I like well, that, it's I like, like that comparison. <laughs> well, it's like there are some movies that are high concept where it's like, you know what it's about right away. Yeah, Jaws, yeah, yeah. 
The shark kills someone right at the beginning of the movie. It's like, okay, there's a shark killing people. Yeah. The chief Brody wants to close the beaches. The, they don't want him to close the beaches. We know where the conflict is. A kid gets killed. Chief Brody feels terrible about not being able to close the beaches. And right. then we're going to go kill the shark. There's never a moment in that movie where you are thirsty for story. You understand yeah. what it's about. And there are other movies that are very ambiguous that aren't like that. Yeah. In, Hol in Holiday Inn, right at the beginning, we have Bing Crosby's character is about to get married. Right, we have the Fred triangle. Fred has, yeah. has fallen in love with the girl, takes yeah. the girl, and that conflict, that triangle, is going to be what this whole movie is going to be about. Right. And so you, when you see that moment, and even things like the I'm going to get her singing, I'm going to get her dancing song at the beginning is in line with what the movie is going to be about. Yeah. For me, this movie is about General Waverly. Yes. General Waverly has exited the movie at six minutes into the film. Mm -hmm. And will not return to the film for f until 46 minutes into the film. Gotcha. 40 minutes. Yeah. And that, for me, is what the movie's about. And so now, as the thirsty person trying to figure out what this movie's about, now that General... Because there's no sense, by the way, that General Waverly's coming back. No, no, you know? not at all. Yeah. Because he comes back as a surprise. So I'm, go I'm not thinking about General Waverly. And now mm -hmm. what do I see? What's the only story element I have is that Phil saved Bob's life. Yeah. And he is guilting him into doing what he says. Yes. That is the only story thing I see. And I don't like Phil because of it. You know, <laughs> no, he's being what well, you just said, what it, that it was, he was a jerk for doing this thing. Well, yes, but it's Danny Kaye, which is why if you're going to yeah, have someone totally. do a jerky thing, you've got to cast the right person that the audience won't think is uh, someone who is a user or a manipulator. And Danny Kaye doesn't radiate that. So when he does that, it's more for humor. Right. And even later on, Bob, when he's talking to Rosemary Clooney's character, he says like, oh, you know, I, I, I don't uh, fault your brother for writing that letter because if you've got an angle, you got to play it. Playing an angle. So in, in, a, in a way, Bob respected what Phil did because he knows it's show business and you got to play your angles because we see Bob now as a successful singer and artist and whatever. And he, of course, comes goes into this twosome with uh phil later on but like he, he immediately from the beginning of the film we see that this is already an established respected singer right who's in the military um but we don't know what he did to get to that position we don't know if bob did the same kind of thing and played some angles or whatever so i think he, the fact that uh danny does this or phil does this rather in this moment is funny even though it is yes of course at its core a bit manipulative for sure so i think so just you're 100%, 100% right mm -hmm. that this is living on Danny Kaye's charms. Oh, is that totally. because he's so, if it was any, if it was anybody else, right. you would not like this guy. But Danny Kaye is so likable that it overcomes it. I want to come back to the angle thing because I think the angle thing is super interesting. We're going to sure. get into it more when we get to Rosemary Clooney. But uh, we realize that he's is going to take him on and then we win the war and then we go into a montage where Wallace and Davis are team up. And I don't know about you, this totally reminds me of the montage in Singing in the Rain when you see the history of Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly. Yep, fit as a fiddle and ready for love, 100%. This is absolutely laying the groundwork for their relationship and yeah, the montage, all of that, how they come together, how they work, how they uh, have fun. And we also as an audience get to care about them as a twosome as a duo right because uh at the beginning we're presented with him singing bob is singing and phil is helping along now it's like uh they're two together and so we've got to in essence care about them before we bring the sisters in and start walking down right. that path of wanting them to find romance you know 
the the thing that's weird in the montage is the one moment that really stands out is there's the moment where they're having an argument about something. As yes. And it's silent. So we don't hear what the argument is about. And then we see Phil point to his arm. And so, and this is where I go like, well, the only conflict I have to hold on to is a conflict between Phil manipulating uh, Bob. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's the only conflict I see. Well, it um, also shows you that Phil is growing in power and stature compared yes, to Bob. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right? Because where he manipulated Bob into giving him a chance, now he's using it in order to get his way. And so there's the difference in that situation. And you see that Bob is listening. Bob is willing to concede to the situation um, multiple times, you know? But and this is what's weird about the movie to me, and and maybe this you know just reveals my bias of someone who didn't watch this over and over again as a kid. But it's just like I don't think this conflict goes anywhere. You know what I mean? Like this isn't a oh. movie about Phil, about Bob's relationship with Phil and Phil being too domineering or or whatever. That's mm-hmm. not what this movie's about at all. You know, and so I'm it, like it's showing me the, and 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 I can kind of sort of my feeling is every moment is precious in a film, and so. Mm-hmm. The movie has led me in this direction, which actually isn't important to the film. Um, but it's uh, okay. they've become big hits. They're big Broadway stars. Yeah. Um, and Phil backstage is going to introduce Bob to some girls that he is obviously interested in them dating. Dating. Uh, That's uh, let's put that in quotation marks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and while this is happening, Bob is arranging some important business things that are going on because the show's off for 10 days and they're going to do some different shows. And he's he's being very much the businessman. Yeah. So let's make it clear. Also, for all the people who get upset about casual sex in movies or allusions to casual sex in movies from the last few decades, here is a film from the 1950s where Danny Kaye's essentially trying to line these two ladies up for him and Bob to have sex with. Not not to, you know, wine and dine and talk about their lives and their careers. No, this is a perform these are both performers and they're trying to get some. So I just want to make it clear that although films from the 50s and 40s in black and white, you could say like, "Oh, they saw love differently. They saw bullshit. They was just about sex all the time. It was there. It's just the packaging was different. That's all. But casual sex was very much a part whether implied or overtly stated in these older films. So this is a moment and a scene that clearly showcases that Phil is just trying to get some and using Bob to get some. And what when they have the argument here in a little bit, it really, we hang a lantern on the fact that Phil has constantly been trying to set Bob up with other women so Phil can get some. So just let's lay that out right off the bat. Wait, hold, hold on, hold on. I... I I am going to 100% agree with you that mm-hmm. casual sex and that not only was that happening in backstage and in movies and and it was I will also agree with you that it is clearly implied in many many films that we've already done on the cinephiles. Yes. But I have to question you on this because what the okay. in the next scene Phil says so after he turns down these women and yeah. and Bob is not interested at all and I should say that one of the women Doris is Barry Chase who is in a lot of stuff in this area mm-hmm. uh, a dancer and they go to the dressing room and now they have this argument yeah. about Danny about why is Danny K trying to set Bob up with these women right and Phil's argument is that you are unhappy you need to settle down you need to have some kids if you have kids you won't be Rogers and Hammerstein all the time and working, working, working all the time, which means I don't need to work. I would have, I currently have to work, work, work all the time. And I would get some time off. Right. 
are you saying that entire motivation is not true? And in fact, that Phil only wanted to get laid? Uh, yes. Uh, well, no, here it's, it's, it grows from that moment, right? Cause remember they make fun of her. They make fun of her intelligence. They make yes. fun of who, so they clearly don't see. So I don't think Phil, even Phil doesn't see that she is necessarily marriage material. Right? That's true. Yeah. But, yeah. But I think Phil, because Phil is a manipulator and look, you could, it's like, it's like Cobra Kai. You could absolutely twist the prism a little bit or the viewing of Phil a little bit. And you could see him as kind of an evil guy who clearly just wants to do whatever he wants to do for himself. Cause what is his point here? I want to marry you off just so I can have 45 minutes of peace for me. And here, here, I'm the one that convinced you to be in this duo. Now that we've become successful and you become a producer, you won't stop working, even though it's led to all our success and all our money. Now for me, I'd like to take 45 minutes to myself, even though I'm the one that was desperate to have you do a duo with me. So this is where I think Phil, Phil is a super minute. Look, we're not trying to destroy your feelings about the movie, ladies and gentlemen. We're just going to honestly speak about certain characters, and certainly you can still love this movie and revere this movie and have it move you and all of that by the end. But Phil is a manipulator, a master manipulator in many ways. And so in this moment, he initially is trying to get uh, his uh, carnal needs, shall we say, satisfied with these two dancers. But when he's in the room, Phil uh, uh, blurts out his overall anger at Bob's rejection of the women that he has been trying to offer up to him because um, he wants to have some peace and quiet or 45 minutes to himself or whatever. Um, because I don't think, and he, he's not searching for anyone to be married to himself. It's about his desire to have 45 minutes to himself. So you have now highlighted, I think, what really confuses me about this movie. Mm. Because I don't, th this just doesn't track for me because we see, well, what's well, like, what you said is exactly right, is that we see that Phil's whole motivation is, I want to be in the show, mm -hmm. right? I want to be your partner. And then we see them growing and succeeding. Yes. And we see them have a silent argument where he uses his elbow, and it's yeah. like, oh, he's manipulating him for business reason. reasons. Yes, 100%. Then we see him trying to hook up with two women who are obviously not the this is obviously Doris is not the woman that Bob's going to marry. That they're not presented as married. Listen, let's be real. Let's be honest. They're not presented as marrying material. Right. We know how they're presented. It's not saying that these women couldn't be married to somebody. We're just saying they're not presented as marriage material for these two people. Well, and 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 so then my perception is exactly what you said, which is Phil wants to get laid. He's again manipulating Bob in order to get what he wants. And this is again while I'm while Danny Kay is lovely and charming, while I'm not the biggest fan of Phil. And then we come in and say a, a motivation that is almost entirely the opposite of what we've seen up to this point, which is he says, No, you're working too much on the show. Right. And you need to settle down and be happy because I care about you and I want 45 minutes on your own and you are lonely and happy. And I'm like, well, why did we do all the other stuff before this? That's where I get like, I, I again, I'm trying to go like, wait, what is this movie about? What is the plot? I don't understand. Well, human beings are complex individuals, Steve. Sure. <laughs> so just because, you know, because think the, the driving force, the thing that I get from the opening, all these scenes here is that. Bob is a guy who is quite happy just coasting along in life and being successful. People seem to really like him. They appreciate his talent. Bob was a solo act. He was going to go back to be a solo act, going to be a singer for the rest of his life. If love showed up, great. But he seemed to be just like bopping along, 
Phil is the one who comes along and is like this battering ram of success. Like we got, we can do this. We can do this. We can get together, blah, blah, blah. But it's not until Phil takes over as a producer with, I'm sorry, Bob takes over as a producer with Phil that all of a sudden Phil realizes the Frankenstein monster he's created. And so he's just trying to marry or trying to get him to be with women. And maybe one of these women will marry Bob and I can have 45 minutes to himself. The problem is Phil is a horrible judge of women for Bob because Phil is a pretty vapid dude who just cares about success and his needs met, whatever they may be in the moment, whether it's success, whether it's carnal, or whether it's rest. And so he is the wrong choice. They just happened to find these sisters because of this letter and all of that. And right. and, and Bob happens to fall in love with the Rosemary Clooney's character. But Phil is a terrible judge of women for Bob. And Phil is only doing this to satisfy his own needs and really doesn't care about Bob to the degree that he should. And I think that's why the film doesn't focus on giving us more about Phil and his inner workings and his complexity. It's Bob yeah. who we're following from top to bottom. And it's Bob no who question. we care about. Yeah. So, so, but this again is like, uh, and I'm so, I am sorry to be critical of the film. No, no, no. I, I think everything you're saying, yeah. I think everything you're saying makes sense. But if that was what the plot was supposed to be, then you would have a scene where Bob is working too hard and Phil sees him working too hard and that Bob is unhappy and that Phil is now trying to do that. You know what I mean? Like we don't have that scene. What we have mm -hmm. is a scene of Bob and Phil arguing where we can't hear what they're saying and Phil guilting him into doing something else. It, it, it's, it sets up the opposite thing. But it's then like, we have the argument and in the argument he says it to him and Bob in the end after initially – being mad at Phil for all of this, Bob does say, There's a lot of sense in what you say, and I have to admit it, but the kind of girls you and I meet in this business, they're, they're young and they're ambitious, they're full of their own careers, they're not interested in getting married, settling down, raising a family. That's funny, Bob, I never heard you open up like that before. Someday the right girl's gonna come along, and if she'll have me, we'll get married, we'll settle down, we'll start having those nine kids for you. 45 minutes gonna be enough? I need any more, I'll tell you. Like, so he does uh, give Phil like, a, a credit, just validate Phil's approach to this, even though uh, Phil is just not doing the right thing at all. But but this goes into this idea of show, don't tell. It's like, yes, in the, in the end, Bob says, yes, Phil, you're totally right, and essentially reverses the direction that we've been going on up to this point in the film, but we don't see it. Like, we, we, he just says, yes, you are correct. I think yeah. you're. I think the core of what you're saying is 100 percent correct, Steve. Yeah, it, it, it's it's not well laid out, and yeah. it seems to be switching motivation conveniently for the scene that's being shown, rather than a consistent motivation necessarily with these characters. So I, I can totally see what you're talking about. Well, the the reason I think this is happening is that we're flailing for story because our real story doesn't start until 46 minutes into the movie. It's a great point. Yeah, we got to keep them uh, uh, entertained with something until we get to the core until of the story. Until we get to the general, which is what the movie's about, you yeah, know. 100%. Bob finding love and the general getting appreciation uh, there. At the right, end. right. Well, but even the – well, well, we'll get to the Bob love story, which I like. Never mind. I'm not going <laughs> to <laughs> We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, again, we must say, we hope you love the movie and appreciate We're not trying to in any way, uh, you know, hinder your love of the film. Yeah. It, it, I really do think it is funny how we've had this conversation multiple times. It was definitely true with you for Highlander. I think it was true for you for 
brought uh, for um, oh yeah, Lost in America. Yeah, 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 is that had you come to those movies at different times, you would have had a different reaction. If I had come to this movie at a different time and watched it a lot more as a kid, I would have a different feeling, a set of feelings about it. Sure. Um, but right now we have to go uh, to see a show because they heard from an old army buddy that his sisters are performing. Freckle-faced Haynes, the dog-faced boy? That's the kid, yeah. He's got sisters? Claims he's got them. Oh, come on now. How can a guy that ugly have the nerve to have sisters? Very brave parents, I guess. So we get some good jokes about that. Yes. And we cut to a club. And it's, it's so funny. Just the design of this movie is so specifically early, mid-50s. It's so like 1953, 1954. It's the bright colors. Everything is just very designed, very much a set. They go get showed to their table. We cut to the dressing room where Betty and Judy Haynes, which is Rosemary Clooney and Vera Ellen, are getting ready. Hmm. So I think Rosemary Clooney signed with Paramount in order to do White Christmas with Bing Crosby. Wow. Yeah. But then because of the stuff with Fred Astaire and then Donald O'Connor, she kept that show getting delayed. And so she did other stuff. She worked with him on one of the Road 2 movies, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize that Rosemary Clooney, who I hope assume that everyone listening knows is the aunt of George Clooney. Yeah. Um, that Rosemary Clooney was initially, she was a sister act with her sister, Betty Clooney. That is mm-hmm. her original. And it was funny because Fred Astaire worked with his sister before, and now we have this. And so her now being part of a sister act makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, Interesting. And Vera Ellen, much like uh, Linda Mason, who uh, the actress Margaret, I forget what her name is, Mm -hmm. but in Holiday Inn, that was really the last big movie she did. This is really the last big movie Vera Ellen does. And I think she steals so many scenes in this film. Yeah, um, she was she's such an interesting actress because she is in, as I said, some of these fantastic musicals and certainly on the town. And I'm being a massive Gene Kelly fan. You know, um, I lo- she also has a small role in Lay Girls, which I, well, not small role, but she's one of the three women in Lay Girls. And she did a few things through the 50s that were great and then just kind of falls off. Um, and it was because she, from reports, was battling anorexia throughout the oh, 1950s. Wow. Uh, and so it was something that she didn't talk about until later in her life. And she tried to put some stuff together. She went to Vegas uh, and had a review there. Uh, in Vegas uh, herself, but then she developed severe arthritis, uh, which oh. forced her into an early retirement uh, for dancing. Um, but in her personal life, she had two failed marriages, and then her only child uh, died of sudden infant death syndrome. Oh my! God. So all this in the late fifties and early sixties um, essentially sent her into being a recluse for the rest of her life. Um, died in nineteen eighty one at only 60 years old um, after a long bout of cancer uh, there in LA. So that's the, you know, it just was, she, you know, sometimes you see this, so people just show what they can do in, in these films and you think, oh, these people are so great. They radiate such talent, such real wholesome sweetness, but you don't know what they're battling behind the scenes. So in the end, it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy, but, you know, at least we can appreciate her talent in these films and, and what she was able to do. It just like, you know, for whatever reason, life delivered her a few blows that just was too much for her to handle in the end. And so from all reports, that's essentially what, what happened to her. So just a shame. I'm so glad you shared that. And I just, it's so, it's particularly interesting with dancers because mm. pa- part of what 
I'm not a dancer. <laughs> Part of what have you spoken to dancers? Except after a few drinks. But yes, yes, yes. Even then, John, how many times have you seen me end up on the dance floor? That's true. Few, That's no, if I, the, the, the drinks have me in a corner holding court. They don't yeah, have yeah. me uh, uh, on a dance floor. But having spoken to dancers, yeah. the job is to do things that are physically exhausting and often terribly painful while projecting yeah. a completely different emotional energy out to the audience. Yeah. of joy and oh, happiness and all this stuff. And you think about what they have to put their bodies through and what yeah. they have to pretend is not going on with them. And the story you just told about Vera Ellen and it just, you know, these people are going through real life shit. He's right. Being in this business, especially as a dancer, you know, I dated a couple of dancers through my life and just the, their, the demands on their body, the demands on their dieting, the demands on auditions, the things they have to deal with handsy choreographer, handsy co-hosts or co I mean, uh, co-stars, handsy directors, things of that nature, but also uh, being seen as lesser than because they're quote unquote, just dancers. There's so much that dancers go through to be successful in this business or try to be successful, whether it's Broadway or on screen. And so, you know, it, it's a tough gig, man. It's a tough, tough gig. If you do it. Bob Wallace and Phil Davis are out front to catch your act. Wallace and Davis. Yeah, they got a letter from your brother. He asked him to take a look and give you some advice. And immediately, Betty is suspicious. Yep. You probably figured we were too shy to take advantage of an old army friendship to call him or anything. Judy, did you read Mother's letter this morning? No. Why? Benny's got a job in Alaska. He's been out of the country for three months. And I was just like, look, Alaska wasn't actually a state yet, but technically he was still in the country. He'd been in the country for <laughs> it's like 100 years. But Judy... Why did you write the letter? Oh, well, because it's good business. You can't leave everything up to fate. Just like honesty needs a little plus, fate needs a little push. Judy, next time will you talk to me first before you push us and plus us right out of show business? You needn't sound so patronizing. I'm just like a mother hen looking after a little chick. So this is establishing a plot point for later on. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, I kind of feel is more tell than show, but... The idea is, is that Judy is the younger sister and Betty doesn't trust her and Betty has to watch after. Ladies and gentlemen, the Haynes sisters. Dude, I knew before the music started that it was going to be sisters. It just was so obvious. <laughs> and they come out in these blue dresses with these big feathers and, um, and it's a nice performance of Sisters. It's you know, Sisters is one of those songs you've heard over and over and over and over again on a million variety shows. And this and this for me was one of them. Uh, and it's fine. Uh, but and we also have the instant sort of Bob staring at Betty, and obviously there's a connection there. Yeah. Um and Phil staring at uh Vera Ellen's character as well, because yeah. they argue about the eyes. Yeah. Um, and it's after the song. And we bring, they come over to the table and there's some awkward, again, very funny. I'm sure largely improvised Danny Kay stumbling over himself, saying the wrong thing. Bob trying to shut him down. Mr. Wallace was just saying how remarkable it was that Benny Haynes' sister should have eyes. I, I mean, blue eyes. <laughs> that is eyes. Uh, <laughs> nice out. And we start talking about Benny and Betty is obviously uncomfortable with this fact that this letter was sent. And they mentioned that they have a snapshot of Benny today and they show a picture of Benny. 
And that picture is of Alfalfa from the, the Little Rascals. I mean, what an interesting claim to fame to be part of two incredible Christmas movies. It's a Wonderful Life and in picture form, White Christmas. So congratulations, Alfalfa. <laughs> Later, late, next, next stop, Saturday Night Live with Eddie Murphy. And uh, I forget who plays Alfalfa. Um, Mary Gross. Mary Gross. Mary, Mary Gross. I she kept thinking great. Terry Gross, and I'm like, no, no, that's the woman on Fresh Air. So Mary yeah. Gross, thank you. <laughs> um, hey, guys. In the 1980s, I played Alfalfa. See, I was just surprised to get Benny's letter today. I didn't know Look, that he... Mr. Wallace, before you go any further, I must tell you. You were brought here tonight under false pretenses. Benny didn't write the letter. My sister did. Judy? Yes, yeah, she figured you'd never come to see us if we asked you, and you might have Benny did as simple as that. <laughs> How do you like that? Even little Judy there's got an angle going. And this sets Betty off. Yeah. Like this is definitely this and this is one of the key plot points and this is this idea of playing an angle whether or not you would do something dishonest to get ahead for your personal career. Yeah. Is the key plot point that will drive a wedge between Betty and Bob later in the film and this is where we're planting it. And she's quite reactionary to it right off the bat. And I, I don't think there's anything Bob is saying that's necessarily negative. He's just saying, look, you know, I get it. It's the business. Like people play angles all the time. And um, she seems to have a much more kind of idealistic approach to the business, which is probably someone who won't be around the business for much longer. Uh, Betty, uh, because like her approach to it is much, oh, how dare you? What an offense. And the thing is, this letter, I mean, what she's defending is a fake letter that her sister wrote for impersonating her brother. So what leg does she have to stand on to get upset about Bob being okay with this letter? Because it's an angle that uh, he thinks her brother is playing. It, it, it's it's a little weird because it's like being mad at Judy for lying is you know, your partners. You didn't consult me. You went ahead and lied. You put us in a weird position. I don't think that's honest. Bob just kind of had a, oh, isn't that funny, mild reaction to it. And now you're thinking, making it feel, Bob feel like he's a bad person. Yeah. But, but this is what's weird about it is that the reason it has to be so strong here is that's the reason that Betty's going to walk out later. So it has to be strong here. Yeah, good point. Yeah. You know. But this is also why the the way the plot setups in Holiday Inn worked are more much stronger for me because it's like it's very, you know Bob is hurt because this guy stole his right. girl now he's worried that the guy's going to steal his girl again because that already happened that's really clear I this, think that's a great point Steve there's yeah. much more inner life working with the characters in Holiday Inn than there is with these characters here in My Christmas actually that's an excellent point well and one of the key differences is that the Bing Crosby character in Holiday Inn has to learn important lessons. Right. That he's been hurt. His being hurt leads him to make bad decisions. And the end, he rectifies those bad decisions. Mm -hmm. The Bing Crosby of White Christmas is basically perfect. Yes. And the person who should be learning a lesson, which is Danny Kaye's character, Phil, for the manipulation, he never learns a lesson. No, no, he doesn't learn anything. Well, and and because, because he's perfect, then it makes, I think this makes Betty look bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? I agree. This is actually very true. And this is a, a problem I had watching the movie as well. The two times that she gets upset at Bob, you're as an audience, you're like, what? Why why is she upset? This makes no sense. And, you know. Well, and, and it's upset at this level because she yeah, in this right. scene is kind of like, look, we're obviously not going to speak to each other. Mr. Wallace, since the chance of our seeing each other again is extremely remote, I don't think it's important for us to go on arguing. <sighs> he says, Well, I'm drink to that. <laughs> very dismissive. 
Well, it's really it's a weird start because we both said again, I, and I'm sorry for the comparisons that that when Linda Mason meets Jim in Holiday Inn when they're in the snow after they had lied to each other, it's super cute. And we're like, I'm in on this relationship. Right. Here, we want the same thing. We want to be in on this relationship because that's what this movie's about. But Betty's been acting a little bit odd. Yeah. What one of the things that's really interesting that I don't think should work, but I actually think totally does work mm. is Phil and Judy being on team, get Bob and Betty together instantly from right. the get go without any conversation at all. They're both like, yeah, this is what we're going to do. We want to get these two together. But this is what's interesting too, because I think the film does kind of lay the groundwork for both of these people doing this manipulative thing in that, because we've seen with Phil uh, from the beginning of the movie, he has put himself in service to Bob. And who knows, man? I mean, honestly, there's a prequel film where Phil has been angling to be the guy running the bells noises oh, yeah. and being on stage with Bob because he has a respect for Bob, but also because he wants to be where Bob is at. So he may have gotten himself in that position right from the beginning of the movie through nefarious means, then saves Bob. And we don't know if him trying to save Bob might have been brought on by the fact if I save Bob here I will, uh, you know, maybe ensure myself a career in show business gets that injury, which is literally a gash. It's nothing, yeah. but parlays it into a career forcing this guy into a duo and being successful with, uh, from the limited time that we have, uh, with, um, with Judy, we see from the, in the conversation with Betty, that Judy is manipulating the situation, wrote this letter under the guise of her brother found out that Wallace and Davis served uh, served in World War II with her brother. So she is now using this because she is ready for the act to go to the next level. So both of them, manipulative people, no surprise they would come together quickly to get both of their needs met, which is Bob getting married so Phil can have a break, but also Betty marrying Bob so that can ensure the success of the Haynes sisters um, for themselves. So. So I have to now confess to being really dumb because <laughs> okay. I think I was so sort of put off by the arm thing and mm -hmm. manipulating Bob that yeah. I didn't make the obvious connection that you've just made, which is that Phil is a manipulator yes. who uses his manipulative techniques to get the things that he wants. And that Judy, through sending the letter, is also a manipulator. And what they have found is two manipulators have found each other and can <laughs> manipulate together. And it that is why this world, is true love. Steve. <laughs> well, it, what, what, and, and it's like, and so A, I will say I was dumb for not picking up on that. Wow. And that is a really a, a point in the movie's favor. But B, I will also say it would be stronger if they, if they finished each other's sentences with manipulation a little bit more of like, oh, well, I was thinking we could do this. No, we have to do this. Well, if we do this, we could do that. Oh my God, you're a genius. You are a genius. And they looked into each other's eyes mm -hmm. and we saw, because there's, the, the their relationship, which I do like by the end of the film, it's weird. You it's know? a weird relationship, especially after they get engaged because they almost seem like they don't want to get engaged and then they end up together anyway at the end of the film. So well, it's very quizzical, their relationship for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll go into it as we go through the steps, yeah. but it isn't exactly clear what they want when they want it, you know? Right. right. Um, but they're out on the dance floor. We hear a little more detail that they've been booked for the holidays in Vermont. We hear Vermont, huh? Well, Vermont should be beautiful this time of the year with all that snow. Which is a thing that's going to be said over and over again in the future. And then he says, We seem to be getting a little mixed up. Maybe it's the music. Maybe it isn't only the music. And they dance out of the room. Yeah. Maybe it isn't only the music is a I'm falling in love with you line. 
that is that is what that line is. Well, you 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 look suspicious. So you don't agree with that? <laughs> yeah, no, I think this is this is what did they say? This is more than the music. Let's go have sex. I this is all this is what I think Fine. when they're dancing yeah. out. Yeah, totally, totally. But I don't know way, if love comes into it in my mind. But fine. Uh, Look, you're you're obviously a more shallow and dirty person than I am. I mean, that's 100%. what I've heard in the course what? of this episode. <laughs> but but either way, whether it's fully love, fully sex, it is saying there is attraction here, right? Yes, hundred percent. That that's what's weird about this. If you have this number here, where hey, there's some connection here. Why are they acting like there's no attraction later? Like it, it's yes. very, it doesn't. It's it's a little bit weird, but we go out and we have what I will say is the most of all the Danny Kaye movies I have ever seen. Mm. This is the most straight up romantic dance scene, period. Yeah. The best thing happened while you're dancing. Things that you would not do at home come naturally on the floor. And I'm going to say two contradictory things. One is I think Danny does great. Yeah. And two is I just watched Fred Astaire in the previous movie and he's not Fred Astaire. You know, that's, that's what's hard about it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the spinning on the poles and all that stuff, he looks fantastic. Yeah. Um, by the way, the costume designer is Edith Head, arguably oh. one of the great costume designers in history. One of the things that she did on this particular outfit for Danny Kaye is that the gray suit the socks are gray and the shoes are the exact same gray. So it's like there's no break but color-wise as you go down to his feet, okay. which normally there, there, there would be. It's very uniform. And, and you watch this film. This is, again, this is Edith Head in the 50s. All the yeah. costumes are just there. They are what they are. Um, and the song is The Best Things Happen While You're Dancing. And again, we are on a set. You know, even when we move outside of the club set into the outdoors, there is a set version of a lighthouse in the background. This is a set, you know, which is fine. It is a very not real style of musicals, you know, at this era. Finish with a big finish where Betty sees them and they talk a little bit more. And then we hear that the sheriff wants to see them. The landlord claims we burned a hole in the rug and he's trying to hold us up for $200. Oh, no, not that old rug routine. Which just, I don't know, I really bumped on that line. This must be a, t- a, dated, a dated thing. Like, yeah, this must I, be a thing from the 50s, right? That this was something landlords were doing to try to trick people to keep their security deposits, I imagine. But he basically goes, I'm going to help you out. He goes and finds the girls in the dressing room and basically gives them their train tickets, which he says is Bob's idea, and puts them out the window to go get a cab and go directly to the train. Again, manipulating the situation. Come on, Bob. I think this will work. I got a feeling I'm not going to like it. I got a feeling you're going to hate it. What am I doing it for? Let's just say we're We're doing doing it it for a pal in the the army. Yeah. It's a joke that keeps coming back, which is an interesting joke because the actual heart of the film is going to be doing something for an old pal in the army. Right. Right. And it's alfalfa. <laughs> and it's alfalfa. <laughs> um, and we also, uh, you know, we have a little scene with the sheriff and the, and the landlord who's getting upset. And then the music starts. Ladies and gentlemen, an impromptu surprise for you. The Haynes sisters. And we see a record start playing and we reveal behind the blue feathers, Phil and Bob doing the Haynes sisters act. Not really in drag, but with their yeah. pants pulled up. So revealing those garters, which men actually wore before we had nice elastic in our socks. <laughs> um, and it is a, it's very, very cute. B, this is the take where 
uh, Danny Kay went off script and started beating um, Bing Crosby with the feathers, which was not part of the rehearsal process. And Bing Crosby was just in hysterics and couldn't stop laughing. And after the take said, basically to Michael Curtiz, well, you're never going to use that take. And of course, that is the take that's in the film. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it's really fun. It's really watching Bing Crosby crack up is very fun. Um, and then they climb out the window. They run out into the alley where apparently cabs just hang out in the alleyway. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> and then they have to jump onto a moving train where they run into the conductor, which is another actor that has just mm-hmm. been in everything, with his, which is Percy Helton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was in Miracle on 34th Street that we did. He's in Kiss Me Deadly. And then in the 50s and 60s, Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, Mission Impossible's, Batman, cool. Bonanza, Perry Mason, Twilight. So, I mean, the guy's, he's in Butch yeah. Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He's in everything. Yep. Gentlemen, either you have tickets or you haven't tickets. We've got a drawing room. Every available space on this train is occupied. Bob is upset, and we ask how much are tickets to New York, which is 97.24, but they're going to have to stay up in the club car all night. And Phil, for some reason, keeps pushing for Vermont. In Vermont, we're going to New York. It must be beautiful this time of year in Vermont, Bob. All that snow. Two tickets to New York, huh? And as we're heading to the club car, we bump into a door which knocks open, revealing the girls in the room that was supposed to be for Phil and Bob. Oh, no, you wouldn't do this to me. Wouldn't do what? After you dress me up like a dame. You get me involved with the sheriff. I almost lose my life trying to catch a train. I I know. I, I just know on top of all that you... You wouldn't take away my nice, warm bed and let me spend the night out here in a drafty old club car. Because he's on to him. Yep. And at first he says, I'm going down there to drawing room A. I'm going to open up that door. And if I find those two Haynes sisters in there, I'm going to take them by the hair. And with these two hands, I am absolutely... Oh, Mr. Wallace, how can we ever thank you? And the Haynes sisters are in the club car. Yeah. (laughs) They sit down and they say that they're booked up in Vermont. And that's where that clicks. And they offer to have him come up. Well, I, I don't know. It... I wish you could. It'd be awfully nice. And Phil reaches over and touches his arm. Miss Haynes, if you're ever under a falling building and somebody runs up and offers to pick you up and carry you to safety, don't think, don't pause, don't hesitate a moment. Just spit in his eye. What did that mean? It means we're going to Vermont. <laughs> and then... They all lean forward as they start talking about going to Vermont. And strangely enough, there's a sign for Vermont right in the middle of their table. Yeah. Odd coincidence. And they go into the song Snow. 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 <laughs> which I love. I re- This song really, I really love the song. It's a very cute song. Snow. 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 It won't be long before we'll all be there with snow. As I'm listening, I went, man, Vera Ellen has a deep voice. But then I later found out it is not Vera Ellen. She has, in fact, been dubbed by Trudy Stabile, who is also known as Trudy Stevens. Uh, So this is another case of a great musical with some one person whose voice was not used. Which stands to reason when you watch On the Town, because she doesn't have any solos in On the Town. Mm. So, yeah, Betty Garrett and Miller do, but she's more ensemble. So interesting. It's another movie I have not seen in forever, by the way, On the Town. That every six months, at least every six months. I love that music. What? How many movies fall into the every six months category? Is it five, 10, 50? It's a good hundred, I think. Jesus. Like if I'm, yeah, if I'm like, cause I have, because of my unusual schedule, 
Right. I will sometimes put TCM or whatever on. And if it's a comfort movie, like On the Town, I will, like I just watched Brigadoon the other night, just randomly because I was in the fucking mood and I just put it on. And so there are just certain movies that kind of like, okay, go Wrath of Khan. You know, you're like, okay, put it on. Or Major League. Like those are those movies that I just kind of like put into whenever I'm in working on stuff or don't need to be paying attention to the movie itself. It just kind of makes me smile when I'm working on stuff. It's dude, it's so valuable for my mental health. So that's what I would say. Yeah. You know, cause yeah, I think, I think, I think my version of that is books. Yes. You, books. you are a much more avid re- reader than I am for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, but I think it's I cause I, I don't, I know we're digressing, but I think it's cause I don't have to stay in one place and I can listen at two time speeds. So <laughs> like those two things are like, I'm doing the dishes. There's always a book. Whereas right. to watch a movie, I have to sit down and you know, Right. Um, but anyway, uh, but certainly we digress. Uh, right now we're singing about snow. I do have to point out, I don't know what the hell that bartender is pouring into those drinks. It looks like soap suds. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't understand what's happening there. Uh, but the song I, I really like a lot. And then it's the next morning and they've obviously become best of friends. Yeah. And he, and of course, Bob helps Betty down from the po- top bunk. And we have this awkward moment with Judy and Phil watching your strategy is a little obvious you don't really mind do you and i like this exchange she says and i got a flash for you right she's a real slow mover honey i got a flash right back for you she's in there with the champ <laughs> which i like i really like I, I i it's a weird thing but i jump in with them being just 100 percent manipulated you know from this point forward yeah yeah totally we look out the window of the train no snow it's hot out yeah and we have some jokes as they're as they're leaving the train, heading off to the inn. I love the one moment where we hear them singing "Snow," and it's live. It's not pre-recorded. It's just hearing their voices in the real environment, and it's just neat. Yeah. Snow, 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 It won't be long before we'll all be there with a little old snowflakes decimal pie, a couple of vanilla for you, and pull up. To the Columbia Inn, and as we said when we did Holiday Inn, this is the same set, or they did everything in their power to make this the same set as the original lobby in the Holiday Inn film. Mm. And behind the desk is another of these actors that is just there, has this huge career, and this is Mary Wicked. Uh, she was part of Orson Welles's Mercury Theater on the Air. Yes. She, she was in Now Voyager with Betty Davis. She's in Abbott and Costello movies, Mickey Mouse Club, Music Man, Donna Reed, Beverly Hillbillies. She's good, good buddies of Lucille Ball and was on I Love Lucy. She was in Sigmund the Sea Monster and MASH and Columbo and Love Boat and Murder, She Wrote. And she played Shirley MacLaine's mom in Postcards from the Edge. I mean, this is a, a career, you know? You're leaving off two important ones. She's one yeah. of the nuns in Sister Act with Whoopi Goldberg, yes. one of the older nuns. And... How I got to know her through my mom is Father Dowling Mysteries. She was oh. a, she was a, a series regular in Father Dowling Mysteries. So, um, uh, you know, she's someone that I knew about before I knew about her. Do you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. 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 Well, she and she's one of these great, and this would be, if, if I were ever to be an actor, it's one of these people, like the great yeah. character actor who comes in, has a few lines and works, you know. They never win awards, but they are so essential to so many projects because of what they, their talent, what they can bring to their roles. Yeah. And right from the opening line, when she's welcoming there, we understand the situation. She says, welcome to Columbia Inn. What sort of accommodations would you like? I can offer you a fairly wide choice. Any room in the inn, including mine. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great line. 
And they say they're here as performers, and she says... I'm terribly sorry, but I'm afraid we won't be able to use you. We'll pay you the half salary for canceling. That's nice, at least. Yeah, that's better than you'd normally get, no honestly. Shit. No shit. It's like, sorry, go home. Um, and, of course, Bob and Phil aren't going to stay there if the Haynes sisters aren't staying there. And they're talking about leaving when 46 minutes of the movie, now the story walks in, which is there is General Waverly carrying wood. Sir. At ease. How are you, Captain? Man, that moment is so great because it is just a full-on shock moment that works so well in the movie. Because you're just like, what? Of all the people to be in the inn, and all these things had to happen for them to end up at the inn. Do you know what I'm saying? And and what sucks is, though, it validates Phil's manipulation because they would not have been here if it wasn't for Phil's manipulation. Well, I, I, this is why I understand why the, the new screenwriters came in and said this story is a mess. Because it, <laughs> it, this is where you really get into tr- – is that because th- this is the problem that screenwriters have to deal with. I want a surprise when we see General Waverly 46 yeah. minutes into the movie. That's how it's structured. Therefore, we have to not think about General Waverly for the previous 40 minutes. Right. But General Waverly is really the heart of my movie. Therefore, my movie has no heart. I have to come up with new conflicts, which is the arm thing, the manipulation thing, playing the angle with the letter, Betty's distrust of Bob, the, you know, like stealing, like I have to come up with all this stuff to get it to 46 minutes in when we have the surprise happen. Yeah. And, and some of those things they came up with work pretty well and some of them work less well, but now we're at the movie, you know, <laughs> but now we're at the movie for God's sakes. Yeah. Well, this is, this is why a note you will always get as a screenwriter is act one is too long because you're trying to establish things. And the end of act one is when the movie is like, this is what the movie is going to be about. Mm-hmm. And this moment, this moment, right which is this yeah. moment, it's 46 minutes into a movie. Act one is usually under 30 minutes, you know? So that's where it's sort of like, we've gone a long time. But when he shows up, it's great. Uh, Bob is shocked. Phil comes in. He's even more shocked. Bob, I was just thinking, hi. I was... Private Davis, sir. And then says, and I find this moment really weird. General Waverly, a janitor. Yeah, he's not exactly dressed like a janitor. I mean, he's dressed kind of in work clothes. Yeah, but is that what a janitor looked like back then, or what? The caretaker of a hotel I, was a janitor. So it's just well, I mean, and a like dude. An ca- lots of people carry firewood. That doesn't necessarily make you a. I mean, like there's a weird yeah. thing, yeah. A, like a kind of class thing that's going on that I find very strange. Matter of fact, it's worse than that. I own this hotel. A landlord. He got it in a shrewd business move. <laughs> um. And we're talking about, you know, the weather and the fact that the inn is not doing well because there's been no snow. Don't worry. I've already told them we'd have to cancel. Why? We have a floor, haven't we? Last time I looked, but who are they going to sing to? Well, even if it's only to you and me, it'll be well worth it. Besides, there'll be six inches of snow tonight. We'll be full up tomorrow. Is that the weather forecast? No, but if there was one thing I learned in the Army, it was to be positive. Especially when you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. And that's so true. The sisters being nice try to get out of the contract. I mean, since there's no snow. Nonsense. We've made a contract. Your first performance is tonight at 8 o'clock. Be there or I'll sue. He gives a wink and a smile. I love the. I mean, I love the guy. He's just such a nice guy. Yeah. And then he exits holding on to the groceries and says, Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, I'm on KP. Yes, yes sir. Hmm. But I do think that this works, again, as a kind of quiet 
conversation about what happened to a lot of people yeah. after they came back from the war. Yeah. You know, not everyone got to be president like Eisenhower. Patton became persona non grata because of slapping that soldier. So there were quite a few people who come back from the war, of obviously of much lower ranks, who had trouble integrating back into the workforce. I mean, we saw in Band of Brothers how that whole myth that somehow the greatest generation never had PTSD or any of yeah. those things like that was blown up by Band of Brothers and other documentaries that have come out since, that there was a lot that uh, these people you know, navigated, negotiated with, but it gets obscured because it all, all the boom of people coming back from the war, buying houses and these single family homes. But of course, people tell you that some of those single family homes were full of some of the most depressing experiences um, uh, of people who were involved in them. So it's just it's just a interesting thing in the way, and I think he's played this way so that you want to care about him and be more aware of oh, yeah. our troops and our soldiers. You know, I think I think part of my weirdness with this film, mm. this one is definitely coming from where I am today, twenty twenty three, and having mm. experienced you know seventy years of movies since this movie because. Yeah. I think what we're talking about is they had this insight that White Christmas, the song, was yeah. about more than just Christmas. Right. And it was about this World War II experience and these soldiers coming home. And they had an instinct about that. And what happens to the soldier that comes out? What happens to the great man who now isn't being, you know, he's, he's come down these levels in society and yeah. or, or how we perceive him, status and like loss and what what about these brothers who care deeply about each other they're all separated and all these things and those themes are totally in this movie and when they're in the forefront the movie is just killing it as far as i'm yeah. concerned is that but because i have watched decades of musicals after this yeah. i know that you can actually be a little bit more serious in a musical and you can be a little bit more true and real and still be a musical but yeah. they don't know that in 1953. You know what I mean? There hadn't been there hadn't been Sweeney Todd and Les Miserables and Company and you know all of these crazy musicals. Those hadn't happened yet. Yeah, but the the musical was trying to change, and this is the transition time. Yeah, when you see this, because a couple of years after this, or a year after this one, is it's always fair weather, which right. was Gene, Gene Kelly's musical about soldiers coming back yeah. from the war. And separating after 10 years and not finding happiness or success necessarily in their own job. So they come back 10 years later and they're like not the same people at all and it's finding their way back into their brotherhood and camaraderie and friendship. So it's a much more cynical take on the idea of war and what happened and um, and in the musical. So I think we were transitioning and certainly eventually it got there, as you said, with Sweeney Todd and Sondheim and all these other things. Yeah, yeah with even West Side Story in the '60s, right? That's, That's a just gonna commentary say, yeah. on gang warfare there, in essence. Yeah. Once again, we now have our third performance of Sisters, and I love seeing General Waverly as the waiter. Mm -hmm. And I believe this is my feeling about this character, and my guess is you'll feel the same: is that when he had to do a janitor job, he did a perfect, top-notch janitor job. hundred. When he was on KP, he was doing the best KP you could do. And if he's being a waiter, he's gonna be the best damn waiter. Yeah. Like. I don't see him as a person who has pride in terms of this is beneath my station. I right. think he has pride in, I'm going to do a great job at this. Yeah. And, and I, I love, I love them looking at him in that position and all the respect they have. And they say, we ate and then he ate, we slept and then he slept. Yeah. Then he woke up and nobody slept for 48 hours. Yeah. That kind of thing that he's putting everyone else above him or in front of him. Yeah. Yep. 
fucking Phil. You should learn a lesson anyway. <laughs> yeah, Phil. Um, it's after the girls come over. They're all feeling bad about what's going on. They talk to Emma a little bit. They basically find out he's heading into bankruptcy. Yeah. And they go, what are we, what, what can we do to solve this problem? And of course, this is a classic, we're going to put on a show movie. <laughs> but if you ask me what this place really needs is a dynamite act. Now you're talking. If we could get something really big, something sock like, uh, like Wallace and Davis. No, honey, you couldn't get them. They're too big. And then finally that gives Bob an idea and he heads off. I don't know what he's up to, but he's got that Rogers and Hammerstein look again. Is that bad? Not bad, but always expensive. And then we hear him on the phone with New York. He's going to bring the entire show up here. And Phil is getting nervous and says, well, how much is this going to cost? What's this uh, What's this going to set us back? Wow. Oh. Uh, how much is wow? We got a big job, Buster, a big job. Now, whatever acts we can't get, we fill in with the Haynes sisters. How much is wow? It's right in between, uh, between ouch and boing. Wow. <laughs> That's all very funny. Yes. And then Emma comes up and says, I won't tell the general you do it your own way, but I think bringing your show up here is just one of the nicest. Well, how did you know? And this is when we hear the plant that as any good housekeeper, she listens in on all the calls. And the reason that she has to listen in on all the calls is because we're going to pay that off later on when she overhears something that she shouldn't. Right. And then she gives Phil a kiss on the lips and Phil goes, he thought of it. And he, she kisses Bob on the lips and he says, Wow. <laughs> all good bits. Yeah. All all very funny bits. Yeah. Cut to the show has shown up. We're unloading all of these trucks. The general comes up and is going, well, why are you doing this? This doesn't really make sense. And their explanation is the show is down. Yeah. So this is our opportunity to keep these people employed, try out some new numbers, use this audience as guinea pigs. It's a totally intelligence showbiz thing to do apparently there's quite a bit about show business i don't understand oh it'll come to you sir this takes time sure we wouldn't be any good as generals you weren't any good as privates <laughs> i love that line i yeah. love that line it's literally every moment he's on screen i just yeah. love he, he, he it, it, it and he does not even doing that much he's just yeah. he's just inhabiting that person you know matter of fact yeah um we are doing some rehearsal. Judy's there's some lifts going on. There's more sets coming up. And then we see a sign. And I got to tell you, John, this sign shocked me. Okay. So we're going to get a lot of these signs as the sign for what number is about to be rehearsed. And mm -hmm. this says minstrel number dress rehearsal. And I went, we just got through dealing with blackface. <laughs> and, and I was like, I don't think there's a blackface in this movie. Is there? And there isn't except the whole song. It's not blackface. No. The whole song is a tribute to minstrel shows. Yeah. And, and by the way, again, the costumes, the black with the red tux, red shirts and bright greens and all of this just super, super bright colors. And they're talking about, boy, I wish we could be in a minstrel show and all the characters in minstrel shows. And it's it's weird. <laughs> it's weird. It's not as obviously off-putting as the Holiday Inn number is. No. So clearly someone was like, let's not do blackface. You know, clearly someone got in their ears about that. But like the singing song, a song revering uh, shows that were done in a way of co-opting black uh, performances or black shows because you wouldn't let black performers do these shows on your white stages, I think is not a good thing overall. But it certainly doesn't come off 
as offensive as Holiday Inn for me. Now, I'm not a black person. A black person watching this may be like, this is trash. So I don't know. I'm re- uh, clearing space for that. But for me, it's not as bad as Holiday Inn. No, I, I, that's, how, that's how I feel too. And I think too, if you didn't know anything about minstrel shows or right. characters of the interlocutor and Mr. Bones, you wouldn't know that there was anything going on. 100%. The first half is this kind of wish we were in a minstrel show song. And then we switch into Mandy with Judy as the star. And this is where you see the, the dance with Danny Kay was good and you see that and i think danny i think it was the thing of danny's game was brought way up dancing with verna ellen as a dancer oh yeah but now you see how great a dancer she is yeah because she is fantastic and her partner is a dancer and he's in several numbers in this named john barcia but i think there's also another interesting face dancing in this number yeah you see george shakiris who of course um was uh, bernardo in uh, in west side story you see him in the background there in a number of moments and later on in the film he'll have yeah i think a scene with uh with rosemary clooney i think yeah. or uh, later on yes. in the film where you really see him in close-up right so yeah fun fun little pick out that i caught for the first time uh re uh, the film for this show the irony is that there are two best supporting actors in the movie and neither hmm. one of them are the leads of the movie. That's so funny when you look at this movie. I don't know about you. I, I love Vera Ellen's dancing in this number. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's great. Yes. I think that the choreography is great. I think the costumes are great. I feel like the song, it feels more like a review of Irving Berlin songs to me than Holiday Inn does because the songs for the most part are just, we're just rehearsing a big number. It doesn't really have anything to do with the story. Yeah. As opposed to we're doing the Washington's birthday where he's changing the music in order to keep Fred Astaire from dancing with uh, Linda, you know? Right. Uh, it's bedtime and Judy and Betty are getting ready for bed both in their perfect silk pajamas with their hair perfect and their makeup perfect. Again, this is so in the 50s. It's not a criticism. That's just an aesthetic. And Betty is having trouble sleeping and Judy is encouraging her to go get a a snack. She heads off to a snack. There's Bob uh, near the bar playing the piano. We have what I think are largely very cute improvised scenes, mostly from Bing Crosby, about what the different sandwiches would make him dream of. And it's all very cute. Now, if I have a ham and cheese on rye like that, I'd dream about a tall, cool blonde, sort of a first sacker type, you know? <laughs> Turkey? Dream about a brunette. A little on the scat back side, but oh, sexy. <laughs> and then she mentions that she can't sleep, and they go to sit over by this beautiful fire. I have a theory about that, too. Would you, would you like to hear it? Very much. When I'm worried and I can't sleep, I count my blessings instead of sheep. I fall asleep counting my blessings. Which I think is great. I mean, you know, I love Lisa and being sing. And then she says, Betty, who was upset about Judy sending the letter, and didn't like the fact that Bob was praising playing an angle, now says, I think what you're doing for the general is one of the most decent, unselfish things I've ever heard of. No angle? No angle. So she is attracted to him because he is a good guy. What we are going to hear is like the knight in shining armor. That yeah. is that that is that is how she is now seeing him. 
And he says, and I like this too, that putting me up on this pedestal makes me nervous. And that leads her to sing Count Your Blessings to him, which I like quite a bit. And that ends with them kissing and also with the general interrupting them. (laughs) I was going to get something sweet, but I see you already did. (laughs) It's cute. It's very cute. It is very cute. But yeah, I mean, this, again, a very interesting idea in the middle of this musical, because sometimes people look at musicals and they go, oh, they're just so, you know, simple and people break into song and it's just about cheesy love and whatever. But this is a great interaction where he is saying like, Hey, sometimes, you know, being that knight in shining armor, there's a lot of pressure behind that. It can feel all alone up there. And when you slip, uh, the fall is uh, farther down. And so kind of deconstructing that myth of the idea of the savior coming in to save you. Like there's this slow changing of the perception of gender politics or what gender politics are in this idea of um, a utopian idea of what a man is supposed to be or all these kinds of things. So I kind of, I like that this is kind of coming in here in this moment and it's almost out of nowhere, yet it makes sense in their interactions because, you know, Phil and uh, Betty aren't going to have these, uh, uh, Phil and Judy rather, not going to have these conversations. It's Betty and Bob are going to have these conversations because they're slightly more intelligent people. So it's an honest back and forth that I really like. Well, it's also that, <laughs> I mean, basically, Betty is presented as a very black and white person. Either yes. you're perfect or you're out. Right. Good you know? point. Yes, and, yes, and, yes. And Bob yes. is going, wait, this is a little, I'm not perfect. Pro- what's weird about it is that Bob kind of is perfect, you know? Right, right. But, but needless to say, Phil and Judy have seen the kissing moments with them and they shake hands. They think they've won. Yeah. It's the next day. Bing finds uh, the general sitting outside and basically the general goes, look, I, I know you're trying to help out, but maybe it doesn't matter because maybe this Vermont innkeeper, maybe his innkeeping days are numbered. I want to tell you something. I haven't even told the women folk. I'm going back in the army. Really? I've applied for active duty. And then you get just one of these sad moments, which is a letter has shown up, which is the response from his army buddy. That says, certainly was a surprise hearing from you. Your amusing letter was appreciated more than you imagined. Of course, you've got plenty of time to be amusing, sitting on that porch, rocking away while we put in a full day's work. So his friend is writing a joking, yeah. I'm trying to let you down easy and give you a hint that there is no job for you here back in the army. Yeah. How would you describe the way the general takes this bad news? I think, well, first of all, he's in front of one of his former soldiers mm-hmm. uh, and a soldier who he respects, by the way. Yeah. Um, so he plays it off and takes the letter, you know, back from from Bob and essentially just like, yeah, well, you know, he's basically telling me that, you know, and we're we're too old to be fooling each other. We know exactly what's going on. And so Bing, who had said, oh, it's a long, or Bob, rather, who had said like, oh, it's going to be a long time before you're retired then tries to pitch him on retirement saying, oh, there's something to be said for leisure, but it's not something the general necessarily wants to hear. But again, I think quietly you can look at this film as a little bit of a commentary. And I wonder if the people involved in the writing of the film had their fathers in the war and what they were dealing with or their grandfathers and what they were dealing with. And so here's a moment where, and this is true. A lot of people after they leave the service and don't find success out in the real, out in the regular world, try to run back to the military. And I've, I'll say something I've never said before. I certainly had that thought mm. um, many times after I left the military in 1998 because you're like, 
you know what? If I could go back in and do 12 years, I'll have a guaranteed pension for the rest of my life. And it's a matter of, can you deal with the bullshit for the amount of years you have to deal with the bullshit so that you can achieve that certain perk by the end. But you know, it's, it's all a choice because you, that the army is much, or the military, the fallacy is the military is much more regimented and you know where you stand because there's still a lot of bullshit that goes on behind the scenes sure. in every uh, branch of the armed forces because humans run it. Um, but you do have that perception that there is structure that you can function in. Whereas right. out in the real world, it feels, or out in the regular world, it feels a much more, much more willy nilly. So, and maybe this is a commentary on people who might have wanted to go back into the military after they couldn't find success in World War II after they left. After they left, I, I think it absolutely is, and I love the last moment of Bob trying to, you know, buck up his spirits, mm. and the general says, "In time, never kid a kidder, son." Yeah. That's a strong statement, man. I, I, f- I felt that way so often when someone's trying to make me feel better. It's like, come on. <laughs> I, I see what you're doing. I appreciate the effort. Mostly with Mike Vogel. Mike Vogel, <laughs> more than anyone <laughs> else, my name. who will try to frame. Look, he'll own up to it. He will try to frame whatever crappy thing happened to you. It's like, well, here's why this is good. And if you look at it this way, you can see that it's a real thing. Never kid a kid or son. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, no, no. You're looking at it wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's absolutely it. We're back at rehearsal, and we start talking about we need to do more. Why are we going to get in touch with all the fellas? Television, Ed Harrison. I'm going to go put a call into him now. And I'll go on down to New York, and if I can swing it, I'll get on his show and make a pitch to the guys myself. What do you think of it? I think it's impossible, ridiculous, and insane. Anything else? Yeah. I wish I'd thought of it first. And so he puts together a phone call. And while Bob is calling down to New York to talk to the big, which is basically an Ed Sullivan kind of character, I think. totally. We see a sign for the next thing we're going to rehearse, which is choreography. And we go into this number. This this is number. You know what I mean? Like, this is an old school. We're going to do a bit. And it is Danny Kaye dressed all in purple in these very early 50s outfits, artsy outfits, doing a send up, I guess, of like Martha Graham and modern dance and and making fun of it. Yeah. And it's you are shaking worst. your head. Yes. It's the worst number of the show. It is because Danny is not a natural dancer. So in order to make fun of the thing that you're making fun of, you actually have to be good at the thing you're making fun of. And Danny wasn't. And um, the outfits they're wearing, I even mirror like what Gene Kelly wears in American in Paris when he has the 16 minute ballet. There's a sequence where he's wearing that cap. He's wearing the tight uh, leggings which of course is his homage to Martha Graham. So there's there's a respect factor involved there. But with here, I think Danny is completely the wrong person to be doing this. And what's quizzical too is that like the people rehearsing the dances that we saw are not the same dancers who were in choreography. So I was like, who the fuck are these people? So just an interesting number overall that I really feel you could have tossed out of the movie. The movie's already two hours. There's no need for that number at all. Well, this is that weird review show element of mm-hmm. like, it doesn't matter if it's connected to story or what it is. It's like, we just want to do this. This not, And it's also, it's a weird structure of these are rehearsals. Yeah. We're just watching rehearsals of these numbers. It's, it's funny. And again, uh, people are going to hate me for saying this. I don't feel, I love Danny Kaye. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel this movie uses Danny Kaye to his best abilities. Well, like, this goes back to something you said at the beginning of our conversation in this episode. I don't think Fred Astaire didn't do the movie because the script was a mess. 
I think he didn't do the movie because he saw how the role that Danny Kaye plays is written. And he was like, look, I'm not playing dumb second fiddle to Bing. I'm not right. doing that. And so Donald, who is great at bringing those roles like he did in Singing in the Rain, Donald can Donald O'Connor always had a great understanding of where he fit in the structure of Hollywood, shall we say, in the power structure of Hollywood, and was happy to do those kinds of things, even though he knew he was a lead and wanted to be a lead and was on Broadway a lead. But in the movies, he was mostly a sidekick. So he understood. Danny here, this is really not a great, well-written role. So I agree that it doesn't really showcase Danny in the best way possible. There are other films where you can really, and TV it shows, that you can really enjoy Danny Kaye and his work and his abilities and his comedic sensibilities much more. Um, because he's a natural lead. He's not a second fiddle, you know. I I I hadn't thought about Donald O'Connor until you just said that Donald O'Connor in choreography would be brilliant, phenomenal. Donald O'Connor would have brought so much life to that number for sure because he is a great dancer. Yes, you know, and he would and a great dancing comedian. Not that and Danny Kay dances really well. I still think that song that he does with Vera Ellen earlier is really great. Yeah, sure, but but. But he's not the level that Donald Connor is, and he can't send up multiple dance styles. That's a, that's a whole other thing. Right. And the other thing, I just go to like, if you give Danny Kay a clear direction of mm-hmm. like, this is what your characters wants, and here's the complicated thing you have to navigate, he will find a way to be really funny. If you yes. have, you know, that the 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 vessel with the pestle has the has the flagon with the dragon, and the potion with the potion has the brew that is true, or whatever all that stuff is, and you say, here, Danny, do this. He is going to make it freaking hilarious. Yeah, but it's you got to give you got to understand where your actor's skill set is and give them the right thing to do. And I don't always feel that they're doing that in this. He dances with words. That's what his dance is. And look, oh. you you have two people who aren't strong because also Rosemary Clooney said that you know the film is almost perfect if they could have found a body double for my dancing sequences because she knows she's not the strongest yeah. dancer. So yeah, there's two. And Vera Ellen was dubbed. So really, this is a film. Put together with scotch tape and uh, barbed wire and some keeping it together. And it works. It works even though all these other people uh, involved in it uh, weren't necessarily the best or at the top of their game in the things that they were doing. So, yeah. well, and again, just to reference the court gesture, which maybe it's got, we talked about it since the beginning of the cinephiles. I fucking love the movie. But like the, when the fingers are snapped, you are the greatest swordsman in the world. Mm-hmm. And when the fingers are snapped again, you are back to being who you are. That is a specific, clear comic beat that yeah. tells Danny Kaye what to play. Right. How he feels about Judy and what he wants scene to scene is confusing. Yeah. 100%. And because that's confusing, I don't, it's like, are you into Judy? Or are you not into Judy? Right. You know, like it, it doesn't, he's kind of playing whatever bit he's trying to make funny at the moment, but it's not really clear. Yeah. Anyway, Bob is on the phone. He is talking to uh, Ed Harrison, who is played by Johnny Grant, who, by the way, was the honorary mayor of Hollywood mm-hmm. from 1980 until his death in 2008. Yep. This is just a Hollywood personality. Basically, yeah. I mean, is that how you would describe him? Oh, yeah, 100%. I remember, you know, going to those parades at holiday times and, uh, you know, being aware of who he was, but not knowing he was in White Christmas because I didn't see the film till much yeah. later. And then when I saw White Christmas, I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. So, yeah, I mean, just crazy to see him at such a young age because I saw him when he was like old and gray haired and whatever. So, 
But yeah, very great to see him being a part of the movie. But look, why don't you go all out? Put the whole show on TV. I'll come up there myself. Plenty of schmaltz, lots of heart. Would be worth over $100,000 in free advertising for you and Phil. Yeah, and we'll put the old boy on himself. You know, the forgotten man angle. Tear their hearts out. And Emma is listening on the phone to this horrible, horrible idea. Emma. And then uh, Susan comes in and Emma hangs up right before Bob says, no, we would never do that. I just want to make the pitch on the show. That would be terrible for the general and does the right thing. Right. But now Emma thinks that Bob is a bad guy who's really just playing an angle in order to get free advertising for a show and will embarrass the general in the process. Did you know the boys are planning to put this whole show on television? Television? Right from here on Christmas Eve. I just heard Bob fix it with Ed Harrison. Oh, it's a big deal. Real schmaltz, I think they call it. They're even going to put the general on. I just can't believe it. Well, that'll make him a pathetic figure from coast to coast. And at first, Betty isn't believing it that much, but it doesn't take much for her, her to believe it. Do you know whether he made that phone call in New York or not, Emma? I understand he did. Oh, good. I hear the television's entered the picture. Oh, well, then he worked it out, huh? Beautifully. It's a great little angle, isn't it? Brilliant. So that, in Betty's mind, confirms that Bob is a bad guy. Right. She goes in, she sees Bob at the piano, and Bob is happy and excited because here's this woman he's fallen in love with. He says, hey, maybe we should do Count Your Blessings together. Look, I don't think I'm right for this song. Well, of course you are. It lays great for you. Come on, let's try it. No, I, I, uh, I really don't think I'm right for it. Yeah, don't be silly. What I'm trying to say is I don't feel like doing the song. I don't want to do the song. In fact, I'm not sure I'd want to do the show. This is a big turnaround. Yeah, yeah. Um, and here's the thing. And this is the difference in the construction of the two films, which is that Bing, gun-shy from being hurt at the beginning, falls in love with Linda, Ted shows up, the Fred Astaire character also falls in love with Linda. He is being is scared or his character, Jim is scared. And so he does not nice things in order to keep them apart, which leads Linda to feeling betrayed and then standing up to him. Right. Right. This is based on a misunderstanding and there's nothing wrong with misunderstandings. Misunderstandings are throughout all of farce and comedy and history. That's a classic way to create conflicts. That's fine. It's foundation of three's company for sure. Absolutely. The problem with a misunderstanding is your conflict is that you can't talk about it because if you talk about it, then the misunderstanding is gone. Right. And so you, what that means is, is that Betty, I think this weakens Betty's character in many, many ways. And the big one is she doesn't stand up to him. Mm -hmm. She doesn't say anything about it because if she says something about it, the misunderstanding would be over. And then our conflict is gone. Yeah. As opposed to Linda, who gets to stand up and say, Jim, what you did was really terrible and selfish and you hurt my career and you didn't trust me. That right. makes Linda's character in Holiday Inn really strong, whereas Betty doesn't say if she was a really upstanding character, she said, would try to protect the general and say, you can't do this to him. But then that would ruin the misunderstanding. So we've, I'm glad we got to this point because, yeah, I to me, I'm looking at it in the construction of the film. And I think everything you said is 100% right, Steve. Like the whole way they set this up is not strong, right? Because – Yes, you've set the plant that Emma listens in on the phone call. So that's great. Right. Like, okay, she's listening in. Bob is calling this guy who is uh, essentially Ed Sullivan, as you said. The guy pitches a terrible angle. And just as he's pitching the terrible angle and Bob is going to reject the terrible angle, we have What's-Her-Face come in with the laundry. That is not a strong enough reason for Emma to get off the phone. 
Okay. Particularly for such juicy stuff is happening exactly. right now. Emma yeah. would absolutely tell her to get the hell out of there or push her, whatever the girl's name away. And yes, I know she's the granddaughter of the general, whatever. No, Emma would be like, not now, uh, later, later, later. And she would keep listening in. So there's not enough motivation for her to get off the phone. It would be different if Phil had walked in or walked mm. by oh, with, yeah. with uh, Judy. Then maybe she gets off the phone because she's embarrassed that someone would catch her listening in on the call, right? That's a stronger decision. So then you're like, oh, no. Whereas What's-Her-Face coming in with the laundry, who has barely been established in the movie, is not a strong enough distraction for us to care. And then we, as an audience, feel a little manipulated. And again, I'm saying this with a disclaimer that if you love this movie, I'm not trying to dismiss your love for the movie. Please keep loving the movie. But yeah, it's not a strong enough situation so that later when she's telling Emma this after or telling Betty this, Emma's telling Betty this, after Betty has just said how much she admires Bob and is falling in love with Bob because of the things he's doing for the general, for her to buy what Emma is saying so quickly simply because Phil comes in with yeah. the point, it's not strong enough. So all of it is not strong enough to warrant Betty's reaction, which is a disservice to Rosemary Clooney and what she's doing because I think she's good in the movie. Yeah. But I agree with you, it's a disservice to the character itself as well, because it makes her seem like what a lot of people felt were the stereotypes of some women from the films from back then. Uh, you know, an emotional type who just takes any information and completely turns on a dime. You can't figure them out, can't live with them, can't live without them, that old shit. When in fact is the film itself doesn't do a good job exactly. of constructing why you would believe Betty would believe this so quickly and be willing to argue with Bob and then eventually leave the show. So yeah, it's a bit of a, it's, it's just the construction of it all that is not strong enough. Yeah. It's all structure stuff. Well, and it's yeah. arguing with Bob without saying why she's upset. Yes. You've got to give reasons for why the misunderstanding stays in the air. That makes sense rather than convenient sense. Right. Yeah. Right. Because you can't, because she can't voice the misunderstanding because there's no misunderstanding. So like, like for instance, right. I, it's not, a, I don't know what, it's not a valid comparison, but like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is one of the great plays at having mm. people perfectly misunderstand or perfectly only see just this much of this piece yes. of information that leads right. them to go do another thing. And this is, is you know, it's, it's ham-handed. And it's also because Bing Crosby's character, again, I'll say is kind of close to perfect because he handles this all in the nicest way, yeah. which is, look, if you don't want to do the song, don't do the song. And he does the thing, which I, which I admire. Which, which is a thing like you feel an escalating argument and you go. People just leave me oh, alone. Oh, oh, time, time, cut. Let's get off the merry-go-round. Now, if you got something to say, say it. Otherwise, let's get to work. I got a lot of details here to take care of. Right. He stays above it. He goes like, I'm yeah. not going to, I don't know what we're fighting about. And I don't want to fight with you. Yeah. So let's, you know, say what, but she doesn't say what she has to say. Because of course she can't. Right. Look, Betty, I've got no time for games today. Now, you gonna sing the song or not? I don't wanna sing the song. Well, nobody's twisting your arm, you know. Is that all, Mr. Wallace? Yes, that's all, Miss Haynes. And she storms out, which Judy and Phil see, and they decide that the reason that she is not moving forward with Bob is because she's worried about Judy, and it goes back to this mother hen thing. Are you sure? Oh, I should have known. She'll never get involved with anyone until I'm married or engaged to something. <laughs> so there's two possibilities. Possibility one is that Judy really thinks this. 
and believes that this is what's going to help get together, Betty to get together with Bob. Possibility two is that Judy is fully in love with Phil. And this is the angle that she is playing because she wants to marry Phil. Yes. What do you think? Um, I think it's, uh, it's the angle that Judy is playing because she wants, no, no, I, the first one, the first one, I think it's, it's not an, I don't think Judy has any plans to marry Phil necessarily because that hasn't been, as you, as we said earlier, that hasn't been built up at all in any way, shape or form. Cause look at how much we're talking about Bob and Betty, but we haven't talked about Judy and Phil not at, at all. all. So no. So I think the first option is the correct option. I, I think that's what it is too. I think the movie would have been better if it was the second one. Oh, if we had seen, 100%. if we had seen Judy really being into Phil and Phil being totally focused on Bob and not really so aware of Judy, mm-hmm. like missing signals, then this I think would all be more interesting. And can I add something to what you were saying earlier? If because you, you say that one of the things about the difference between the Fred Astaire character and the Danny Kaye character is the Fred Astaire character goes on a, a bit of an arc in Holiday Inn and learns lessons. Danny Kaye being uh, Phil being manipulated by Judy to end mm. up in the marriage is a way of him learning a lesson because he got played by a player. And so he learns by himself. Wow. I've been doing this to other people. Now I know what it feels like, you know, kind of like totally a, right. The, the, what is it? The Batman line or super when he disappears. Oh, that's what that feels like in that kingdom. Yeah. It's that kind of moment where Phil would be like, Oh wow. I should have. Yeah. Okay. I get it now. You know, the, that would have been much more powerful and you give Judy more agency, which is kind of, although his virulent is great. There's not much she's doing in the movie. It's really focused on Bob and Betty much more. Well, and I'll take something that you said much earlier, much further, which is that we went to the scene where he's trying to hook up Bob with Doris. Yes. That you had said, we're trying to go out and get laid. If they, if they had doubled down on that and said, Phil had a new girlfriend in every single place yeah. that they toured yes. and that he wasn't, and that he said with Judy, oh no, I got to get Bob settled down. Then I can play the field. Yes. And we see that Judy is into him. Well, then this all makes sense. He doesn't want to sit down with Judy. You know, right. or anybody, and she has her eyes on him, and in the end, he's going to end up with her. That would all then that would all be much more developed. Yes, so that but, when they have the kiss behind the tree, that's much more. Then it all makes sense. Yep. Well, and part of it is is that in Holiday Inn, Fred is, Bing, Bing Crosby is the central character, but Fred Astaire is just slightly below him, right? Mm, right. And and Linda is the clear central female, and Lila slightly below that. Yes. Here it's Bing Crosby and everybody else. Right. There just isn't, nobody is up at Bing Crosby level at all. Mm-hmm. But we do have what I think is a very cute bit of her going, coming up with the idea that we have to get quote unquote fake engaged and just moving in on him and him realizing that she is the object of the fake engagement. It's cute. <laughs> yeah. It's also where, I mean, if Vera Ellen was moving in on me like that, I don't think it would be, there wouldn't be much of a problem. Right. We see a sign that says cast party tonight on the house signed by the general. And I'm like, isn't this guy broke? <laughs> Look how he's throwing this party for like a cast and crew of a hundred theater people that looks very elegant. I think you're going to run out of money. <laughs> we have some funny bits where we start uh, dancing. It's the same song. Uh, the best things happen while we're dancing and yeah. Judy and Phil continually switching partners with Bob and Betty trying to get them together and it's not working. And there's uh, another guy who keeps cutting in and it's fun. Yeah. Um, Back and forth here. Yeah. Even the blonde Um, gets a, gets a comeback here uh, by being hooked up with somebody. Yeah. And none of this is working. Betty and 
uh, Bob are not into being together at all. And so it's time to make that engagement announcement. And we get a very funny, stumbling Danny Kaye announcement of their engagement. Judy has just agreed to, uh, uh, well, I mean, that uh, she just asked me. Uh, that is, she just said, well, what I'm trying to say is that Judy and I are engaged. And there's a moment with Phil and Bob where he kind of is trying to encourage Bob to maybe take the plunge. Oh, I don't know. It seemed a little icy today. Ah. Oh, that's today. I have a feeling by tomorrow it'll warm up just fine. Well, you sold me. I'll go. And Bob goes and brings Betty some champagne. Let's drink to their happiness, huh? To buttermilk and liverwurst and getting things back to, to where they were yesterday. Which is... Him, again, because he's like a perfect guy coming yeah. to make peace. And I don't know what the conflict was, but let's get back to being friends again. And she just puts the champagne back on the tray without drinking and just walks out on him. Yeah. Here's the thing. I, I like Rosemary Clooney in the movie. Okay. The more I think about Betty, she's not a good person. She, this is terrible. The way she's, she is so holier than thou, but not talking to him. I mean, just turning around and walking out on him. Yeah. Like, no. not cool. The general has driven her to the train station. He thinks he wants to interfere, but she refuses. Uh, Bob is there, again tries to talk to her. Betty, about yesterday, uh, I, if I said anything, I, I didn't mean. Goodbye. You know, I was so busy with other things, I must have sounded like an idiot, but Goodbye. I didn't mean what you mean. And she is gone. Well, she, she gets When she gets something in her head, man, that's that. Well, and this is also where I go, wait a minute. So you're the show must go on. You're in a show. You've been rehearsing. You're walking out like the night before the show. Yeah. Your sister just got engaged. You're walking out on her. The general is going to be embarrassed nationally, as far as you know, and you're just walking out on that. And mm. you're acting as if you're the hero. And this is the contrast to me with Linda who yeah. stands up to Bing Crosby and holiday Inn. she, we don't yeah. give Betty that moment. Betty doesn't get to do anything good. You know? Yeah, Betty is an interesting uh, – her, her decision here is interesting because I think you bring up excellent points. Like she doesn't push back. She doesn't um, try to stop it. She doesn't call him out to try to stop it. She just goes, I don't want to be a part of it. I'm out of here, right? Yeah. So now some of you listening may be like, well, maybe she's not good at confrontation and didn't want to get involved. And That's totally sure. fair. But this is a movie. And in a movie, you've got to really – lay the groundwork out about why someone would do this, right? She's running away from Bob because she's mad at what he's doing. But Betty is seems like a fighter, an idealistic person who will stand up for things. And so it seems contradictory to her character that she would just run away. I think the smarter, or the, I think the more effective move would have been to somehow write it that she's trying to stop this from happening. And so she thinks everything Bob is doing is trying to make this happen. So if she stays to kind of try to mess with everything Bob is trying to do to make this happen, that's her way of protesting it. And Bob doesn't know that she's doing that. And Bob is getting more and more frustrated that this plan that he's trying to pull off is not going to happen because he cares for the general so much. Then that becomes a thing. And so it can play a little more stronger for her than running off and taking a show and screw her sister, screw Phil, screw Bob I'm, and the general, I'm doing my own thing, which I agree with you, Steve, again, turns her into a much more selfish character than we were initially led to believe that she was. And so I think that, you know, I think Judy would be the more, the person who would run quicker because oh, yeah. it could affect the brand of the Hayes sisters. Whereas I think Betty is doing it for different reasons that don't seem to make sense, you know? 
And here's what I want to point out. And again, it goes to what you also, well, you said it a bunch of times. I said it a bunch of times. If you love this movie, that's great. And, and the thing is, is all the stuff is here. And so people might right. watch So like, no, it's here. She is a good person. That's what it is. She doesn't like angles. She doesn't like that's what she, right. and you, and you're absolutely right. I, I know I've mentioned these terms many, many times on this show and other episodes of the podcast, which is show don't tell and show don't right. tell for me is the big deep i never stop learning about it thing that for the last 40 years i've been thinking about show don't tell or 35 years and it gets deeper all the time and i want to give you an example and it relates to this which is the first movie that i wrote called stonebrook there was a scene i was watching with my sister Mm -hmm. and it was in a wide shot and this thing happened where this character made this important choice and i stopped the it was like a rough cut of the movie and i stopped the movie and i was really upset because it's like it didn't happen the way it was supposed to happen. You couldn't see him make that choice. And my sister's like, no, I know what the choice was. And then he did that thing. And I'm like, I know that you saw it, but you didn't feel it because the camera wasn't there where you saw him think about it. You didn't see the thing that he looked at that made him make the choice. Like it wasn't all there. Like, and she's like, right. no, I totally understood that happened. And I'm like, I know that you think that you understood that that happened. <laughs> and you know me, like this is exactly. Yeah. And, you and don't get the, it. <laughs> well, and this is the thing. When some, something is shown to you properly, yeah. In the right way, you feel it on this deep gut oh, level, true. you know, and, and that is different from just, I understand what happened and why it happened, you know? Right. And it's like, if you think about, uh, you know, it's not your fault in goodwill hunting or something, <laughs> everything has been set up to this moment and you're, he's all the words he's saying, or it's not your fault. They don't, they're, they're very thin words, yeah. but the moment will just make you fucking weep. Like that's when something has been established. You know, that's, that's, and it's been shown to you in a deep way. That's what we're aiming for. So it is here. It's just, I look at it and go, oh, there there could be more. I want, I want more. She sent a letter saying goodbye to Judy. And then it all comes out. And now Bob is just packing his bags and yelling at them because he's found out about the fake engagement and all the ridiculousness of this. How could you be stupid enough to try a stunt like this? Phony engagements and messing around with people's lives. You ought to be horsewhipped. First you, and then you, and, and then you again. And, yeah, and he's saying, you guys manipulated people's lives. You guys don't understand. What you're and he's basically telling Phil, this this arm thing is never going to work again. Yeah. This is the end. Right. We're done with the arm. The arm yeah, is he's, over. It's ironic because he, Bing Crosby now, is playing the, possibly, Steve, playing Linda. Maybe we've been thinking about it wrong, that it's Betty who should be Linda, but maybe Bing is Linda in all of this. Because he's kind of been yeah. walked into this whole thing, manipulated this whole thing, and then finally he's the one that stands up to the manipulative person, which is Phil, and to a lesser degree Judy, and calls them out and says, "I'm never, you're never going to do this again to me. You guys tried to trick me. Why didn't you tell me you were doing this?" So maybe they moved over Linda's storyline to be Bob's storyline in this movie. I don't know. He certainly is standing up to them in the way that Linda is. In that sense, it's true. Where mm. where it doesn't fit to me is that Bob Bing's character in Holiday Inn was doing something manipulative and negative out of his insecurity and his desire for Linda. Mm. Whereas the weird manipulative thing that Judy and Phil do is kind of based on a bunch of stuff that doesn't quite hold up, which is the yeah. mother hen thing. It's right. not based on what their desires are. It's based on a misunderstanding of what they think mm. Betty's desires are. Right. Right. You know, but anyway, um, <laughs> this is sorry, it's getting a little bit in the weeds. Needless to say, he tells them the one thing he needs to do is to make sure the general doesn't watch the Ed Harrison show tonight. Heads off to the carousel club where Betty is going to be performing 
Betty sees him, tries to get out of singing the song that she said she was going to sing. The band leader won't let her. And we go into Love, You Didn't Do Right By Me, which is by far my favorite Rosemary Clooney in the show. I, I think she's great in this. Love, you didn't do right by me. You planned a romance that just hadn't a chance. And I'm through. I, again, the black dress that she's in is beautiful. Yeah. The the all dressed in black costumes of the guys. And this is where George Shakiris really shines. Yeah, in yeah. he's great here with Betty. Yeah, for sure. So apparently he basically has one close up, like where you yeah. really, really see his face. That close up started his whole career. He wow. started getting fan mail to Paramount saying, who is the guy that is in the close-up in the song with Rosemary Clooney? And this is what started his clear because he's so striking. It's right. just such a beautiful Not man, a you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I think Rose again. I'll say it. My favorite Rosemary Clooney in the in in the song. The only thing I wish I don't understand why they're not cutting to Bob more often listening mm. to this song, because this is where the song does specific. Unlike you know choreography, yeah. which doesn't really relate to this movie. This really, really does relate yeah. to the movie. The number's over. Betty comes over for the table. It's awkward, of course. Uh, and, and and he reveals that the engagement was fake. And he says, it "Seems they trying to figure out some way to get rid of any barriers between you and the alder. It seems like they thought you and I were serious about each other." Just shows you how, how foolish people can be. <laughs> Again, they're both kind of playing off like they're not serious about each other, right? And then it comes Ed Harrison yeah. talking about the big TV thing, which doesn't give uh, Betty any reason to think that she's wrong about this. Right. And then it's getting towards the show and they got to go. And so Bob can't resolve anything with Betty and they're out of there. And she was, I think, from the way Rosemary was playing it, she was relenting a little bit. She was yeah. maybe yeah. going to see this other side of it and maybe hear the truth of what's going on. And then Ed Harrison showed up and, and yeah. which messes it up. Yeah. And we're back at the end, and the general is super excited to watch Ed Harrison, which is one of his favorite shows. And then Emma comes in screaming because apparently Phil has fallen down the stairs. And here we do get, I'd say, some of the the, the better yeah. Danny Kay being awkward and funny and goofy and spewing all these words as he's making sure that the general cannot go back in and watch the show. Susan, call a doctor. Oh, please don't do that, sir. It's probably just a small internal muscular hemorrhage, sir. It'll be all right. This is the dancing he can do. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, you know what it's like is, uh, I wonder, It's I know Dick Van Dyke also had no dance training, but could be Ugh. amazing physically given the chance. And I think yeah. Danny Cade, like you find the right slot for him, he's amazing. Yeah, 100%. Thank you, thank you. And now it's a great privilege to present my special guest, an old pal from Army Days, a great guy and a great entertainer, Bob Wallace. Bob comes out and sings about what happens to the generals when the war is over. What can you do with a general when he stops being a general? Oh, what can you do with a general who retires? Again, right? Laying the groundwork of this whole thing. Yeah. It, and I'll say it for the 78th time. Every time the general is the center of the story, I'm a hundred percent in. Yep. When they're talking about him off screen, when we're singing about him off screen, when he's in the scene, I'm in, this is totally working for me. Yeah. 
And it's also working for Betty, who is watching the show and slowly realizing that maybe her perception was weird. Yeah. But again, the construction of this doesn't make sense, right? Does it? I'm asking, does it make sense? Because why would Betty go and sit at the table with Bob? Why would she do that? Maybe out of being nice and because Bob is a name and you want to keep up appearances in New York. You don't want to ignore Bob at his table. I can see that, but that should be there. And then she's kind of relenting a little bit, but then Jefferson, then Jefferson shows up and it changes or Ed shows up and it changes things. And so she, she so she's back to feeling this way. Why would she be watching the program? If she, the whole reason she left is because she didn't want to witness this. So why would she be watching it at her show? So to me, you can tell me why. You can make reasons why, oh, everyone else was going to watch it. So maybe she felt pressured. You're creating that because none of that is in the film. So why is she watching it? You sound like me. (laughs) Yeah, what I'm saying is, yeah, because there are certain moments that I think you're right in, in the construction of things. And to me, it struck me as well. So I agree with you. Like, it doesn't make sense that she's watching it this way. It would make more sense if everyone else was watching it and then she heard something in the kitchen uh, because she's got feelings for Bob and so she doesn't know what to do in that moment. But to sit there watching it, to me, is an active choice. It's not an active choice that makes sense considering what we just saw from her, which was believing that she's right, that Bob is doing something terrible to the general. And so it just doesn't make sense why it's happening. Uh, I... I probably have slightly less of a problem with her watching it only because we do stupid things to ourselves of like tune in to look at like looking at your ex's Facebook page or something like that. You know, like people do. I've never do, do, I don't understand what that is. <laughs> Fair. Um, but, but, but I still, but where I agree, I do agree is like, it could have been, she could have been avoiding watching it. She could have been like right. backstage and the show was coming on and she's That's like, I'm not watching this and grab my yes. person head now. But my bigger objection is this is all passive is that, watching a thing and learning a thing is passive and bob and and the thing is is the the bing crosby character in holiday inn had done something really negative Mm. was filled with cowardice had wasn't going to do anything and was pushed into doing the right thing and then stands up and does the right thing and goes after the woman that he loves here bing crosby's always been doing the right thing He's continuing to do the right thing. And it's just someone realizing that she was wrong about him doing the right thing while sitting alone watching TV. You know, like that's just as not as active, but, but you can't not believe Bing Crosby standing up there in front of the camera and saying, like Eddie told you, that song is uh, for the 151st division, the officers and the men under the command of major general Tom Waverly. I hope a lot of you guys were listening because uh, I have something I want you to do for me. And he tells what he wants, which is to come see this show up at the end in Vermont. Betty is obviously super moved by this. And then we cut to the train station, which had been empty before. And now huge crowds of soldiers or former soldiers are coming in, hugging each other. It's all very happy. And then the general is up in his room. And apparently Emma has sent all of his nice suits to the cleaners. Why would you do that, Emma? Emma, I'll make my own decisions. I got along very well in the Army without you. It took 15,000 men to take my place. (laughs) Which I think is a great line. I agree. A great line. And then down in the lobby, Betty shows up and their hugs and Judy comes out and their hugs. And then there at the top of the stairs with his granddaughter is the general. Dude, this moment. I cried. I'm I'm not going to lie to you. Me too. I'm old. Yeah. I'm old, sensitive sack of shit. 
And there's just such a nobility and a regalness to him. And also like a respect that radiates. And the Michael Curtis does a great job of placing the camera exactly where they should be at the top of the stairs. And of course, the actress playing his granddaughter, the reaction she has is one of utter reverence. But again, I think running through this film is this idea of respect and appreciation and honor for the people who served in World War II and defended our country and fought against the Nazis. So seeing him you know, descend the stairs and her going, oh, granddad or whatever, like just the kiss on the cheek and everything, just utter respect. And it's a beautiful, beautiful moment, man. It, it's, it's so, I, I'm going to say something weird, which is, I, I don't know if you remember when we did Iron Man years and years mm. and years ago, I said that my feeling about Iron Man is it's kind of a B movie elevated by an A plus star performance by Robert mm. Downey Jr. That's my mm. feeling about it. My feeling about this is it is a good musical with good numbers and nice things that is elevated by an A plus core heart of the general story. Yeah. Is that for me, like I'm a hundred percent in moved completely involved when he's there. And so uh, having a lesser number, like the minstrel number or the choreography number, it's like, okay, whatever, you know, (laughs) the things that I like, I really, really like. Right. Right. And then, you know, he takes the arm of his granddaughter and they yeah. walk into the room and the lights hit him. Stand high! And there are all these soldiers. Man, and this act, Dan Jagger, yeah. just like his reaction to taking that in is just so great. We'll follow the old man wherever he wants to go. Long as he wants to go. the soldiers come marching out great great i'm in 100 this is all working perfect and then they say troops are ready for inspection and he gets up there and he does what he did at the beginning of the movie and i'm totally here for this too he says some of your men are under the impression having been at anzio entitles you not to wear neckties well you're wrong neckties will be worn in this area which is why I think of Patton, because that's the first thing he does oh, when he yeah. shows up to North Africa is make sure everyone's wearing their neckties. Right, good point. You're soft, you're sloppy, you're unruly, you're undisciplined. And I never saw anything look so wonderful in my whole life. So great, man. Which is kind of what he didn't say at the beginning when right. he said, how do, how do I get off the stage? Yeah. And now he is saying it. Because that's he the way he could have gotten off the stage. Yeah. yeah. And then we go into Bob and Phil's number, which is, gee, I wish I was back in the army, which is totally fun. Mm-hmm. Totally fun number. I, in particular, the moment when uh, the Haynes sisters come on stage and the big costumes pop up in front of them. It's all really, really cute. Yeah. And after they finish this number, we realize that it's snowing outside and they open up these big, huge barn doors, which I think was essentially opening up one soundstage and connecting it with another set in order to create this huge amount of space. I think that's what's going on here. Smart. And we go backstage, and now I don't quite understand what's going on, but Bob is giving instructions to a bunch of little kids. They're all dressed in you know Christmas red and white outfits, and the curtains open, and everyone goes into white Christmas. And everyone knows the lyrics. <laughs> you do. <laughs> um, well, it's, what's funny is we've now had two movies that do White Christmas two times. Yeah. So this is now our fourth rendition of White Christmas. And none of them are solo. None of them are no, be doing it true. solo. Yeah. yeah. It was a duet. And, uh, you know, the kids come in and there's, I always think about like, okay, you were one of the ballet dancers, the girls that came in in White Christmas, and you're now 80 years old or nine. Like, it just must be so 
crazy to be one of the kids in one of these classic kinds of yeah. films that people watch over and over and over again. And there's this moment where they give gifts and Bob gets a gift from Betty, walks behind the tree and opens it. And it's a knight on a horse. And Bob is like, I'm settling down basically. And Phil is going, no, no, we have to play a bunch of gigs because we got to make up for the money we lost. And then Judy kisses him. And now Phil is signed on to the same thing, which of course we knew was inevitable. And they go back to singing White Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. By the way, this was, I believe, one of the last days of shooting as they're shooting this number. Oh, wow. And they did multiple takes. They did their final take just as the king and queen of Greece showed up to the Paramount Studios. Whoa. And the studio head said to Michael Cortese, hey, they want to come see the set. Michael Cortese goes to his cast and says, the king and queen of Greece are coming to the set. We're going to do one more take of White Christmas. And Bing says, I have a tea time. You already said we were wrapped. I'm out of here. Wow. And they and they say, look, the king and you heard about the king and queen of Greece are coming. We're going to do one more take. And Bing said, you heard what I said. And he left. Wow. So they staged one more take of White Christmas with the playback playing Bing Crosby's voice. And every single one of them is there performing this with the King and Queen of Greece, except for Bing Crosby, who is nowhere to be found. <laughs> oh, Bing. What a prick. <laughs> I mean, Sometimes. I'm, somewhere, yeah. I'm somewhere between what a prick and respect. You know? uh, well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the movie was a huge hit. This was the yeah. biggest film of 1954. It made $12 million at the box office, which is like $135 million today. So adjusted for inflation, this would be one of the biggest musicals of all time. Yeah. Uh, the only nomination it received, strangely enough, was for Best Song for White Christmas, mm. which it already won for Best Song <laughs> a decade earlier. Yeah. And it lost to Three Coins in the Fountain from the film oh. Three Coins in the Fountain, which I've never seen. No, it's not one I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the song. Yeah. yeah, Sure. This by the year is the year of On the Waterfront. Um, which is as different from white Christmas as you could possibly imagine. And one of the interesting things too, that I, I, maybe we said in holiday end, but Bing Crosby is really the reason why singers do Christmas albums because of how they make money. And because Bing Crosby did, he did Christmas albums. He did Christmas specials his whole career. Mm -hmm. And they were always almost entirely secular. White Christmas is a secular Christmas song. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Right. It's not a religious Christmas song. Right. And Bing sort of walked that line in a really powerful way. Yeah. And the only other tidbit I have of information is that they made a stage musical of it, which was relatively successful. Yep. And that is everything I have on White Christmas. Okay. Do you have, <laughs> perchance, final thoughts? Yes. This is still, listen. Our job on The Cinephiles, ladies and gentlemen, is to deconstruct a film and give you our honest thoughts about the movie, right? But at the end of the day, when you put this film all together, you cannot deny its impact on so many people who love the movie. Because like so many movies we love that, like Steve pointed out, don't get nominated for any awards, we love them because they touch us in our heart in a certain way. And this film certainly does for a lot of people, and I certainly enjoyed watching it again for our show because... 
when you turn off the whole like, well, what's working, what isn't working, and just enjoy the characters and the performances and the the actors that you're going to get in this film, and especially the general, who is really, as Steve said, a big, big part of why this movie works, you can actually enjoy this and have fun with it. And it's a perfect holiday movie. It doesn't ask anything of you. And in the end, it delivers you something really sweet and fun and a powerful message about appreciating the people who served our country, but also appreciating the importance of being with people that you care about during the holiday season. And so those are some wonderful messages. Now, it does not mean that if you choose to be alone, you're somehow less than or anything like that. Not at all. But people, there are a lot of people who do want to be around people to celebrate the holiday season, celebrate Christmas. And I think this is a fun film to remind you of that. And I think of a, a review from The Time, which I think is perfect. Uh, they described the film as a, um, as a a big fat yam of a picture <laughs> richly candied with Vista Vision uh, and says all these things about how all these wonderful things in the film, but then says, at the end of the day, a yam is still a yam. And absolutely, <laughs> this film is a yam of a film that, yeah, it's not going to win any awards, but it does win awards in places that are maybe the most important place to win awards, and that is in filmgoers' arts. And I think that's absolutely what um, why this film still endures and why this film still is watched and introduced to new generations and finds audiences with new generations because it's just such a joyful film by the end of a uh, by the end of the movie. First of all, a yam is still a yam is definitely the I think the best thing I've gotten out of this podcast. That is a fantastic <laughs> look. A yam is still a yam. Poster. Yeah. <laughs> um, secondly, I'm going to extend the food metaphor because as people know, I love food. I love restaurants, mm. and I have loved restaurants from the highest three Michelin star experience that I've had a couple of times in my life yeah. to the great taco on the street corner or a cheesesteak outside of a place in Philly. I love all of those things. And those things are different. And it's like, it is true that the attention to detail of that cheesesteak is not going to be at the level of the three-star Michelin restaurant. But that yeah. doesn't mean you don't love that cheesesteak. And in particular, there's food, I would say, which is the, there's your mom's you know, pot roast. Yeah. And when you eat your mom's pot, is it the best pot roast in the world? Is it like the steak at a great restaurant? No, it's your mom's pot roast and you love it and you love it and you think about it and your mouth waters and you miss it when you don't have it. And you think about family and you think about your child and you think about all those things. And there are movies for us that might not be the greatest movie structurally in terms of the way we might break it down on the cinephiles, right. but they also might be that very special time you spent with your family. They might be sitting at the fire. They might be that thing you did every year when it came on television and you were in the, when the grownups were downstairs and the kids were upstairs and you were hanging out with your friends and you're watching White Christmas, or it might've been when you first discovered Danny Kaye, or it might've been when you first heard the song from Bing Crosby. And you might've been a soldier who came home or new soldiers who came home and you were spe especially touched by General Waverly. And so this movie might be the best movie for you. It might be the most important Christmas movie. And that is awesome because part of what we've talked about for years on the cinephiles is yes, we talk about the films, but we also talk about our lives and how, the ways that our films fit into our lives. Yep. And so if this is one that fits into your lives or for whatever holiday film fits into your life, I hope you're sharing it with family, with people that can enjoy it with fellow cinephiles, if you're around them and with us, absolutely. And in fact, 
we have a few extra presents heading your way as we head through the holiday season. So look forward to those. And of course, if you want to subscribe to the Cinephiles, if you haven't already, you could do it on Apple Podcasts. You could do it on YouTube or Spotify or Google Play. Leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't already, you can buy or stream White Christmas along with every other film we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. You could support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you want to reach me, it's SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how would they reach you? You can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, and my other podcasts, the Geek Buddies and the Hot Mic that are out there for you all to enjoy uh, this holiday season. And I think that's it for this week. We will see you next time. I believe we have one more special thing planned for mm-hmm. 2023, and then we'll be back in 2024 with a whole bunch of exciting new things right here on The Cinephiles. <laughs>